Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, the radio chick, Annie Ellis. Join Annie on Tuesdays and Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time with an open chat room full of her regulars. And yes, you can even call in. Call 917-889-3675. That's 917-889-3675 to be a part of the action on the phone line. Not able to listen live? Not a problem. You can always catch Annie, the radio chick, and Southern Sense Talk Radio podcast in archives at southern-sense.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Southern Sense the right way. When an emergency strikes, what's your first impulse? If your answer is, run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan, to prepare for things that may happen. It's hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot Supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com. Or call 888-441-7290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put an dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, and click on the icon for My Patriot Food. All right. And we're back. We're back and mad. Welcome to another exciting adventure here on Southern Sense Live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, The Lone Star Day News, YouTube, Facebook, Spreaker, whatever the heck with it. You know, just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I see people piling up in the chat room. Welcome back, friends. Yes, we're really here. I'm your hostess with the most is the radio chick, Annie, along with my co-host who keeps on forgetting to unmute himself. So welcome back also to <laughs> Curtis. Yes, Senate. Good afternoon, Curtis. Hey, can you hear me? <laughs> we got you. We got you loud and clear. <laughs> All right. Well, it's good to be back. Oh, um, as you know, as you know, I took some time off to, um, 
deal with this new challenge in my life called cancer. So I took, what, two months off, I believe it was, uh, to get a jump on it. And I'm doing fine, you know. I like to report that I'm doing fine. So it's great to be back, and I'm ready to yes. rock and roll. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about. Well, we're waiting for our first guest, Megan Barth, to call in. Uh, what I can probably do is shoot an email over to AJ just to make sure she gets on the call and calls in. Um, but uh, we've got a huge lineup today. We're doing a, a little bit of a different format. Normally we have maybe one or two guests at a time on the show and only do two hours. But we've extended the show now to a full three hours. So... Uh, we got a lot we packed into it, so we're going to try it out, see how it works, and hopefully it doesn't tax you too much, hopefully, uh, Curtis. Uh, so we'll see what goes on here. And my computer is a little bit slow here, here. Uh, so I'm shooting over an email, um, just letting him know that we called her and left a message. All right. So, Curtis, you've got a book you've been working on in the meantime. Um, tell us about that. Yes, it's called The China Checkmate. And what it, what it is about is China's ever, you know, intent to reclaim Taiwan, which used to be a part of mainland China. Um, the threat has always been there. And in my novel, they actually act on it. And, of, of course, because we have an agreement um, with Taiwan, you know, to come to their defense. It's a very interesting um, situation. Um, China and um, United States barring, you know, and squaring off. And to add insult to injury and to make it a little more interesting, Russia gets involved. They take the side of China against the United States and her allies. So it's, it's an interesting book, and um, it, it's going to keep you at the edge of your chair. And um, <laughs> really, it's, it's, a, it's a story that you really don't want to see happen in real life, but in the book, it's safe to um, take it to places that um, we would hope that it never goes to in real life, just so that we have some insight on what could happen if these three superpowers, you know, collided. And that's basically um, well, you know, the story without giving it away. It's it's funny because you were uh, writing about this as these things were unfolding, and you know, yesterday uh, Trump made an announcement from the Oval Office that he had met with Xi, uh, and uh, they're coming to some sort of a deal. Uh, they've hammered some stuff out, so you know, maybe some of this has been a little pushed to the side. Uh, what we're also going to have later on today, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Sergeant Sagari. Uh, we're going to be asking him about the Russian-China situation, too, as well as what's going on in the Middle East and other things. Um, as I said, we've got ourselves you know, jam-packed. We're just waiting for yeah. Megan Barth to call in uh, to talk about you know, all the stuff I've written down to talk to her about. Yeah. And um, see, for years, so we'll see what happens for years, here. For years, China has gotten away with um, stealing our intellectual property, our technology. And in some ways, um, we have some administrations that assisted them, you know, and especially um, when it comes to weapon systems, um, we gave them some technologies that they took back home. You know, they send their students here to to um, be educated at some of our top 
universities, they gain that knowledge and insight to our, you know, technology, and they take it back home and um, they add it to um, the state um, for the state needs. And then they use that same technology against us. So Trump is doing his best to um, stop this madness. I mean, it doesn't make sense that we, we, you know, spend so much on research and um, these guys just take it and, and go home and um, use it against us. So I applaud Trump for everything he's trying to do, especially in the face of the great opposition he has had to um, face yeah, ever well, since the, he took off. Yeah, well, and also the breaking scandal that no one really is talking about is about these computer schools uh, where they're taking our kids and brainwashing them into believing socialism. Uh, these Confucius schools, it's supposed to be these higher learning, these STEM programs. Uh, but instead, China found a way to invade our nation through our schools, the same way we have with Turkey doing that with the Gulen schools, insinuating Islam into the school systems through these Gulen schools and bringing over people, the labeling on their work visas as teachers who have no teaching background whatsoever and these individuals come across in these visas and then disappear into the fabric of our society never to be seen or heard from again unless the you know this is the latest uh, islamic terrorist outbreak uh it, it, there's a lot that's been going on that we have not been paying attention to and it's coming through our school system and, and this is really mm-hmm. really insidious um, I, I know a number of years ago I did a program on the Gulen schools, specifically one that was in uh, New York City. And I should have followed up, which I didn't. I think we should do a show in the future, maybe get Robert Spencer back on or something like that. And talk yeah. about these Gulen schools and you know, how they're using it to, to actually fundamentally change the United States. You know, we now have two openly Muslim women, and it's questionable whether or not they're actually eligible to really be in office in questions Congress. about you know whether yeah. or not they reside in the districts districts they were elected to. Uh, but you listen to them talk and openly promoting the socialism. One of them wants to tax us as much as ninety percent. But oh wait, that's only for the those people earning more than, you know, ten million dollars. Well how many small businesses will come in with that? And that money they earn then goes back into building that business up, hiring more people? Or what about those that, you know, they're saying, oh, if you're worth $10 million, you're worth, not earning, worth $10 million, we will tax you an additional 2 or 3%. Hey, wait a minute. What about the, these family farms? Their assets may equal $10 million, but if you divide it up among all the members of the family and then tax them on it, they're going to have to sell that farm just to pay the taxes. And they, they throw these things out like, the everyday man goes, oh, you know what? they're the big, rich corporations. The heck with it. Let's go tax them anyway. You know, they've got the money. that They don't care how much you tax them. But when you stop and you look at a <laughs> small business, they have the assets of $10 million. But those assets are working assets. You know, uh, we sold our business because our local county taxes got so high that they were taxing us more than what the equipment was. And at that point, we threw our hands up, closed the business, and said, bye. You just lost revenue to the county, if that's how stupid you want to be. We do have a caller in the line. Let's hope that this is our guest. And bringing it on, error code 702, you're on the allowed with Southern Sense. I'm your hostess, Annie, the radio chick. To whom am I speaking? 
Eric killed. It looks like they tried calling in again. Let's try to bring this person in. Eric code 702, you're on the air live with Seth and Sense. To whom am I speaking? Uh, this is Megan Barth. I'm your guest, Annie. All right. Hi, Megan. Oh, welcome Hi. aboard. Welcome aboard. Oh, man. Thank you. There is so much. I, I have so much. I always love talking to you because you're so knowledgeable in so many different areas. And I don't even know where to start at this point because I'm looking at my notes. And I've got all the stuff, arrows all over the place going, all right, I want to ask her about this. But this is going to move into that. I want to start off with the BuzzFeed fake news, that it was going after Trump and it proved everything they wrote was fake. And now I'm segueing into that, the fake news from BuzzFeed, to now the new deep fake video news that's coming out. They're trying anything and everything to make the right look stupid. Uh, well, I think that uh, the mainstream media, the deep state, uh, Hollywood actors uh, are not only looking to uh, make us look stupid. They're actually criminalizing our voice. They're criminalizing our thought. Uh, they're even criminalizing our fashion sense. Uh, and this is a very deliberate malignment of conservatives or Republicans. Uh, even now, a MAGA hat uh, is banned at a restaurant in San Francisco. Uh, that is now uh, seen as the modern-day swastika. Uh, never mind that plenty of Jewish people are Trump supporters, many of black people are Trump supporters, Hispanics, uh, and any color American uh, is a Trump supporter. Uh, now, all of a sudden, and I, I predicted this, because when they started calling us Nazis, where do you go from there? Uh, and so the fascists, the Marxists, the socialists, the communists, uh, which are, is the modern-day Democrat Party, uh, and let's not forget John Brennan voted for a communist, and he was head of the CIA, and he's leading this deep state coup against this president. Um, this is a very deliberate, coordinated attempt to criminalize conservatives. And they will use, if they ever gain power, outside of the House, they will use unbridled power like Robert Mueller and Andrew Weissman. They will abuse their power and use Gestapo tactics against their political adversaries. And so welcome to the modern-day Democrat Party, which is much like the old Communist Party. I don't think there's any differentiation between the two. Honestly. Well, there's not much light of day. I mean, especially when you're looking at their platform, whether it comes to taxes, whether it comes to uh, the, the persecution of Christians, uh, whether it comes to uh, the uh, treatment of conservatives, the need for censorship, the distribution of propaganda, and now the abortion issue, uh, the dis- destruction of human life. Uh, that can now occur way past the first trimester, but all the way into the last trimester, uh, past the point of dilation, uh, into uh, into uh, abortion uh, after the baby is born and able to live separately from the mother. This is what the left has become. However, I'd always say that the left has always had totalitarian tendencies. Uh, and so I think I learned from David Horowitz, and the tagline of his front page, mag.com, is inside every uh, liberal or progressive is a totalitarian screaming to get out. So what the mainstream media now is doing, as well as the Democrat Party, is mainstreaming socialism. 
and somehow dressing it up as the you know economic model that should be envied when in fact history proves them otherwise but they don't want to look backwards they only want to look forward forward and that's why they always use the forward slogan uh to deceive people into believing that the truth is lie and the lie is truth and it's just uh, a, a language game that is is insidious and truly impacting our culture culture uh and our education system and culture is Hollywood, unfortunately. Uh, and so you see this anti-American sentiment brewing within uh, the Democrat Party and the anti-Semitic sentiment brewing within the Democrat Party. And in spite of all of the hate speech, if we can use that word, which the Democrats love to toss around, but they never accuse themselves of the same, uh, ne- never cast the same aspersions on themselves, uh, the, the Democrat Party is now using this inflammatory language to incite violence, and they have. I mean, were they calling for gun control after James Hodgkinson uh, nearly assassinated two dozen uh, people? No. Were they calling for gun control when here in Nevada we had uh, four innocent Nevadans, our neighbors, executed by a 19-year-old illegal alien from El Salvador, and he executed them within six days uh, for uh, three different houses, an 80-year-old couple, uh, a single woman taking care of her mother, who was 53, uh, and a 72-year-old woman, all shot execution style by a, an illegal immigrant who was hiding out in the shadows uh, in our capital city of Carson. Uh, we haven't heard a peep from the Democrat governor here, nor have we heard an, a national outcry from Democrats for gun control. Uh, and so in spite of all of the accusations that the Democrats and the media have labeled against Trump supporters, whether they're Nazis, whether they're anti-immigrant, whether we're racists or xenophobes, it doesn't seem to be working within the Hispanic community or the black community that well. Because when you look at the favorability polling amongst these two demographics, you see Hispanic Americans are now at 50% favorability of Donald Trump, up from 31%. I think it raised 19%. And African-Americans, the last poll I have seen was hovering around 30%. And so these strides that Donald Trump is making within these specific communities can really be tailored back to uh, one thing, and that is, I believe, jobs. When we have such a thriving economy and we're looking at another record-breaking jobs number of 304,000 jobs uh, that were reported today, and that's coming on the heels of 340,000 jobs in December, you know, people are being weaned off of government, and those communities specifically impacted by Democrat policies are now able to free themselves from the chains of government and go back to work and provide for their families and put food on the table. And they're actually waking up to what a free market system looks like instead of a totalitarian government centrally controlled system looks like, which always has uh, produced, for example, in the city of Chicago, in the city of L.A., in the city of Detroit, in the city of St. Louis, in the city of Baltimore, poverty. And so uh, more and more yeah, people are being lifted out of poverty because of what Donald Trump has done for the economy. Well, you've, you've touched on so many subjects, and I don't even know where to go back to start on. But one of them that is really uh, touches me really to the heart um, is the abortion issue. And New York State recently passed that law in Cuomo, and all those people were cheering and clapping in the back where a woman can abort the baby as the baby is being born. And that really, it, it hurts. And it was so to the point when I was talking to my husband about it, I started crying. 
And, you know, you look at these commercials for St. Jude's and Shriners Hospital, and I asked her, you know, this this governor in Virginia wanted to say to the woman, well, if there's any defects with the baby, if you're not happy with who the baby is, um, well, then you can discuss this with the doctor or whatever, and then, you know, have the baby killed. And I looked at my husband and said, "Do you, when you see these commercials, is there a single one of these children that you would have had killed? Which is what, what they were promoting, what Cuomo has promoted. God forbid that the child is born with an arm missing or with a heart defect or uh, mentally disabled. Well, oh, wait a minute. Doesn't Holland already do that? They have zero mentally disabled children being born because they abort them before they're born. You look at, you look at these people. And you wonder, what are they thinking? I mean, when I go to public supermarket, and God bless publics for doing this, they go out and they hire these mentally handicapped people to work in the stores. And you see the happiness and the joy of these people when you're checking out or with the stock in the shelves. And they're giving to these kids pride in their self and making like they're feeling they're as, just as worthy as any other person in the world. And what a gift. And this is what they will throw away, what Cuomo wants to throw away, what the idiot governor of Virginia wants to throw away. Such precious lives. Well, and, and you, you brought up a point about disability, and, and I have pinned a tweet uh, on my Twitter page, which is at Reagan Babe, and that's Reagan as in Ronald, Babe as in Ruth, and that's pinned to the top of my page. And it is a moving testimony from a young man who has Down syndrome. And he said, please don't look at me as a birth defect. Look at me as a human being. And the statements that he makes, I think, are about six minutes long, are some of the most moving statements as far as a commercial, if you will, for the pro-life movement. And you mentioned Holland, and I think Holland is the country that has completely eliminated Down syndrome in their country through abortion. And we can learn so much from those folks who have Down syndrome. Uh, and he actually testifies to that. I went to school with kids. Uh, they never treated me any differently. They showed me love. I learned from them. They learned from me. Uh, I am a productive a member of society. I am educated. I work. Uh, and that's uh, all really that you can ask of, of anybody, is to become as, as, as fully sustaining and contributing as, they, as their uh, – as they can be, with or without a handicap. I mean, what's next? Uh, you know, what, what is next from inf infanticide? And, and I have to say that when I was reading uh, an article by Matt Walsh, actually, who wrote an excellent article about New York's law prior to the Virginia law coming into focus, and believe me, this is going to spread like a cancer around every liberal city. It's already being proposed in Nevada that they eliminate the 24-week threshold uh, of abortion here in Nevada, which was upheld in 1990. Uh, they, they just want to remove that restriction altogether. So it is abortion on demand. Uh, and so that's really where the Democrats have gone to. <coughs> Excuse me, that's where they have progressed. And I've always said progressives are, are incrementalists. They keep chipping away and chipping away until, they, until the ends really do justify the means. This incrementalism from, of Roe v. Wade, for example, was first couched in the argument uh, that it was just uh, based on the health of the mother. In case the mother was going to die, uh, you know, that's when abortion should be done within the first uh, trimester, right? Well, then the trimester got longer. 
uh, as you as you witness. And then all of a sudden, abortion became reproductive justice, and then all of a sudden, it became the woman's right to choose at any given time. And that's the slippery slope that many of us conservatives, in specifically in the pro-life movement, have been talking about. That it is incrementalism, it is a slippery slope, and when you, when you refuse to recognize the science, even though the Democrats claim to be the party of science, this is what happens. You have these horrific bills being proposed, for example, by uh, Assemblywoman or, or at least Representative Tran, I think her name is out of Virginia, who the Virginia governor supported, and when she was asked by a Republican colleague in the Commonwealth, uh, we're talking about mental health here. And the woman said, well, no physical health. And she, he said, well, we're talking about mental health. And she said, oh, okay. Um, well, will there be a psychologist, pre- if the woman's mental health, and, and they couch this argument under just the very broad definition of health. It doesn't have to be physical health. It could be financial health. It could be mental health. And so when talking about mental health specifically, this Republican rep had said, well, can you tell me uh, if there will be a psychiatrist or a psychologist present in the delivery room to make the determination of whether or not this woman is mentally fit to have this child or to abort the child? And she said no. Okay, so we're just going to have an OBGYN who has no clinical training in psychology or psychiatry make mental health evaluations and diagnoses based on what? Nothing. You know, Megan. I, I, when it gets into this yes. issue, I get so pissed off because you turn around and you think about the law in New York, and we fought for this because I'm a former New Yorker. I got to the South as soon as I could. Uh, but when we fought for this law in New York, that if, if in the position of a crime you cause a woman to lose her child, if she's pregnant and she loses the child, that child would be a murder charge against that criminal. And Correct. what Cuomo has done in one fell swoop has nullified those laws. So there is no longer personhood for that child. And matter of fact, they call it everything else, a fetus, they call it, you know, whatever. It's the woman's health. But what about the health of that baby? to see for that baby and then they talk about whether or not it's viable well wait a minute a child that's 10 years old is still dependent upon their parents for survival a child of 10 weeks is still dependent upon the parents for survival so what do you determine as viable are they age 21 now Uh, yeah, that would be a great question that the mainstream media refuses to ask. And what I've also noticed is that, of course, the mainstream media refuses to cover these laws in depth. You have many feminists, who I call toxic feminists, uh, coming out and cheering this law, uh, absolutely not having read the law, uh, not the ambiguity which you point out, uh, as well as the ambiguity that I point out is, is exactly what is health. Obviously, not a, it's not a choice between life and death anymore, as it was originally couched. Now it's just expanded to financial health, mental health, whatever type of health they would like to create uh, in order to create the need uh, for infanticide. Well, Curtis, you were going to answer the question. Yes. Go ahead. <laughs> yes, it seems like the, the left has given the right so many opportunities <clears throat> to jump all over them for their policies. And um, it seems like the only one that's rising to the call is the president. Mm -hmm. And maybe from time to time, Lindsey Graham, which is surprising. But anyway, (laughs) 
I don't I know. It looks like a, like a pair of balls. <laughs> it looks like it's a missed opportunity when the Republicans just sit on their hands and watch Trump, you know, take all the heat. I mean, like you mentioned earlier, we we have this job report that's out, and it's astonishing. But I don't hear any any Republicans out there, you know, saying, "Look, you know, in spite of the fact that we had a government shutdown." Look at the job creation during that time. You know, I don't hear that. You know, I mean, what what else can the president do on his own? Yeah, you know, you make a, a, a very good point. And I have said, really, since the beginning of his campaign, there were probably an equal number of Republicans within those chambers and an equal amount of Democrats in those chambers uh, that didn't want this president. They did not want Donald Trump. They did not want an outsider coming in and breaking up their cozy cabal. And when you look at the Republicans, and I've said this for a long time, uh, we lost our way uh, when we started going with the Bush family. Uh, We abandoned our principles and we embraced something that they called moderate and uh, socially conscious or something, conservatives, or compassionate conservatives. I never really understood what that meant. Uh, moderate Republicans don't win national elections. Uh, what is a moderate Republican other than maybe an old Democrat, right, maybe in the days of the Democrats? Because all these moderate Republicans, including Bush and the rest of them, were doing deals with big government Democrats, and they were growing government. Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan oversaw the largest expansion of, of our federal government in our country's history. They are moderate Republicans. Uh, and they had the power for a very long time with the likes of Bill Crystal being their, you know, voice of conservatism, right? Uh, and so they were not very happy, when, and, and I think equally surprised, when Donald Trump won the election. And so you see these rise of the never-Trumpers, whether it's Ben Sass or, or others. Even Lindsey Graham for a while wasn't on the Trump train, but I think Lindsey Graham finally realized, specifically around the Kavanaugh uh, hearings, just how evil and how power-hungry the Democrats are, who would, who would choose to smear an innocent man and accuse him, uh, falsely accuse him of gang rape and then say, well, all women must be believed, but don't you dare talk about uh, any Democrat who has accusations of rape. And so <clears throat> I think that many Republicans are a little bit late to the, the game, so to speak, but I also think that many Republicans that hold power aren't playing the same game. They would rather, as Donald Trump, they would rather play with Democrats and grow government. And, as, uh, and then, of course, keep their cushy jobs and get reelected. Uh, but by, it just, when, when you look at how much change Donald Trump has brought uh, to D.C., uh, you're going to see this backlash uh, from both sides of the aisle. Uh, and good luck to those who are running away from the president because they aren't going to win reelection. I would think those that really stand strongly with the president, specifically on conservative principles, specifically this issue now, which is the uh, sanctity of life, uh, instead of abandoning that principle, we certainly could run with that principle because 70% of the American people are against late-term abortion. So being for late-term abortion is not mainstream. And that's one of the reasons why the Democrats don't want to talk about it. There was not one Democrat on the Hill, according to a couple publications I read this morning, uh, that said, oh, I didn't hear the the Virginia governor's remarks. Oh, I didn't hear uh, trans remarks in Virginia. The hell you didn't. I did. And I'm not in (laughs) D.C. 
<laughs> well, Megan, we've got our next guest in the line. I want to thank you for joining us, and we're going to have you back on soon. Uh, we're now only broadcasting on Fridays from uh, 3 to 6. We've altered our schedule and want to do it more of a weekend uh, weekend roundup. So thank you so much for joining us. I'll get a hold of AJ, and we'll get you back on real soon. Uh, people can find you at ReaganBabe.com. There's a link up on the show page, so when people go into the podcast, the archives, they can see the link and go directly to your site. You're, you also are in numerous publications uh, that you put articles up to. It's all on your website. Thank you so much for joining us, Megan, and God bless you for the hard work you do. Oh, anytime, and God bless you guys, too. Thank you so much. Take care. All right. Uh, that was uh, Megan Barth. Check her out on Reagan Babe. And if my computer will stop acting up with me, we can bring our next guest in on the line. And we'll wait for the computer to go through. Uh, next guest is going to be Dr. Ken Canfield. And Dr. Canfield, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Hello. All right. Um, All right. I just lost my train of thought. I apologize. Uh, Grandparenting. Thank grandmother. Yes. Right, grandparenting, grandmatter.org. And also you have your own webpage, which is your name, kencanfield.com. Um, I wanted to talk to you about, you know, the craziness, uh, the way our kids are being treated today. And a perfect example of the ravages that's out there is these Covington kids. I hear they go for a Right to Life march. They're approached. They stand their ground. They don't shout back at anyone. They don't make any disparaging remarks, yet for more than four or five minutes, these uh, black Israelites hurl one epitaph after another after calling some of the most vilest things. They don't react or anything, and yet they're the bad guys. What is happening to our kids today? Well, I think a tsunami of issues, cultural and personal, are attacking our kids, and this is why grandparents and fathers, two areas that I've focus on are so important. Grandparents give a sense of heritage, and that heritage will distinguish you. If you know where you came from, you have a better shot at knowing where you're going and how to be discerning about the issues and challenges of this day. And so I uh, applaud any grandparent, father, uh, mother that is helping uh, the youth of America uh, get get a hold of their identity. This identity formation is key. And You know, your prior guest talked about the identity of our nation, which is at the core of so many things. But I want to move it personal into the family system. What are we doing to help solidify and strengthen our children, our grandchildren, from letting them know where they came from and and their destiny, so to speak? Does that make sense? Absolutely. How do we know where to go forward if we don't know where we came from? You know, the pride and history of this nation. Yeah, we've had a couple of burps along the way. We haven't always been the best, but as we move forward, we make ourselves better every single day. Um, I forget the gentleman who was speaking uh, on Fox News last night. I was just walking through the room when I heard it, and he said that, yes, when he was growing up, race relations weren't the best the bigotry and the hatred back then because but what was back then and what we have today is completely different the rights and the freedoms that we enjoy today are so expansive and the things that we can do but we have to know where we came from first to understand where we are and how to move forward yeah this progression i think uh, that sounds similar to shelby Steele, a well-known 
uh, author that it, that really builds on Martin Luther King's uh, comments about the content of your character, not the color of your skin. And and we have made progress. Now, can we make more? We can make more progress in every area of our life. But if we can't celebrate the things that we have done, how can we move forward and know what the next objectives are? So I think we need to be reviewing that all along as we move forward. Absolutely. And um, one of the things uh, is parent involvement, knowing what your kids are doing. And unfortunately, you know, when I was growing up, oh, your your kids are going to grow up stupid if you just park them in front of the TV and leave them there. And there was a movement with a lot of parents saying, all right, get the kids out into the house. TV can only be watched when we're there. And that's expanded now to these smart devices. And kids no longer know how to interact with each other. They're angrier. They're unable to cope. And it's all because they become hooked on these smart devices. Now, someone had proposed possible legislation to restrict that. And I thought about that and said, wait a minute, do we want more government intrusion in our lives or less? What would the answer be? Well, I think less is best. But if you have no parental controls, then inevitably you're going to be forced either by an educational system or by, you know, other influences that are positive to learn how to control these these things that buy for our attention and, and passion. Now, uh, one area that I wish they would address is this whole pornography issue. Uh, some time ago, I suggested, why can't we label porn sites as .xxx instead of .com and .org? Because if you go to some websites, like the whitehouse.gov gives us a history of the White House and so forth, but if you hit whitehouse.com, at one time it was a porn site, and they played around with this idea, let's go where people are going, and you can see some innocent junior hire doing a report on the White House, and all of a sudden, here's a boy, maybe, you know, a lack of of the family support he needs, and all of a sudden he's in this, you know, uh, quagmire uh, that, that will take him down, and so there is a role for government to play. But uh, to be the overall pervasive influence, that's not going to be uh, to the best of, of that boy or that girl's development. So the, the question is, what do we control and how do we control it? But ideally, if a family or a, an extended family sets those supports, that child will more likely thrive. Yeah, and that's the problem we have is it's so easy to keep the child quiet, you know, and you're in a car ride, just give them the iPad or the smart device or whatever. Let them play their video. Let them chat with their friends online, whatever. And the parent has a nice, quiet car ride. But we've got to get parents back to actually parenting and make them responsible. Very good. I I totally agree. So how do you do that? Uh, One way is to remind them that all all along the, the stages of the life course, uh, we remember, uh, at least I was told when I was born in the 50s, you know, that's when mom got dropped off my mother at the hospital. They knocked her out. My dad was, get this, in the waiting room at the hospital with a bunch of cigar-filled uh, other dads <laughs> celebrating, smoking in the hospital. And look how the change has occurred where 
right now you're not a, a what I'd say a stellar dad unless you're involved in the pregnancy and the birth of that child. So we've moved it that way. I think in the educational system, engaging, and again, I'm focusing on dads because so many of the uh, maladies and, and struggles of today's youth result as a, as a consequence of father absence or father inattention and uh, to engage them in the school system early on, showing the benefits of reading, of, of engaging that child. And then we know the rites of passage when an adolescent or pre-adolescent begins to feel things that are different, they have a tendency to, you know, uh, back off, not withdraw uh, from uh, that maternal caring, and they're looking for that strong, nurturing dad that, that's helping point them to the right way of life in the world. So there are segments of, of life that we just need to be more uh, encouraging to fathers and parents and general mothers uh, to engage themselves, and their children will be in a benefit. Dr. Canfield. Well, you know, I got a funny story because I think my dad may have been pacing right next to your dad uh, because when I was born and the doctor came out and told him, uh, Mr. King, you know, you've got a baby girl, first words out of his mouth is, oh, no, she's going to get married and leave me. <laughs> 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 and you did. Yes. I was the first girl born in seven generations in his family, so it was a treat. Uh, but, yeah, Whoa. I think my dad was facing next to yours. <laughs> oh, man. But Dr. it is it, it, the importance of, of yes. both parents. It, it's extremely important. And go ahead, Curtis. All right. We used to hear this term banter about Bozzy Clinton um, during his presidency. It takes a village. I think it's more um, something Hillary put forth, but how does that jive with um, the responsibility that parents have in raising their children? I mean, shouldn't it be the parents more so versus the village or, I mean, how should that go with leaning, you know, what percentage should be village, what percentage should be parental? Well, undeniably, the uh, focus of parental involvement hasn't been exploited or spelled out like it needs to be. So, yes, uh, villages help, but nothing compares to an engaged father and mother. I mean, that's like holy uh, writ or, or, or input, uh, you know, bringing them into the picture, making sure they're deeply involved. Now, this is what a study I did some years ago looking at significant influences on a young man's life throughout the life course. And, and then this brings in the village at the proper time. When asked who was the most influential man in your life from birth to six-year-old, seven to 13, 14 to 21, 22 and up, this is what the data reported. Uh, the first two segments, zero to six and seven through 13, it was the father. Undeniably, he was number one, and that number one position, except, you know, when the father wasn't there, and, you know, a certain segment didn't have the luxury of having a dad there, so they put, you know, extended family member, uh, uncle, older brother, a grandfather, etc. and this is the, the point I want to make. As, as adolescents move forward, they look for examples and role models outside their family system, and that's where this village uh, becomes important, whether it's a teacher, a coach, a scoutmaster, a minister, whoever it could be, 
they start to rise or, you know, the, the friend uh, who had a great father, particularly for those that didn't. So in the early years, vitally important that fathers have uh, a focus as it moves through the life course. It doesn't mean they have less of a focus or influence, but as a child's world opens up and they go off to college, military, work, wherever, uh, there are other influential people that, that can impact them. And that's where that village is, is, has that long-term uh, impact. There's a lot Thank of truth you. to that because it's funny because dad was my me, to me my dad was number one. Um, he taught me so many things. Matter of fact, he wouldn't even let me get in the car to learn how to drive until I rotated the tires, filed and regapped the spark plugs, aligned the headlights, changed the oil, and only then was <laughs> I allowed to get in the car to take a driving lesson. Uh, so you know. Uh. He taught me independence. He, he taught me responsibility. And if there isn't a father here doing that, then the child is left adrift. And now you have these kids that at the age of 35 are still living in mom's basement. And this is really important to us as we develop throughout life. And my dad passed away going on a little over five years ago. Not a day passes when I don't miss him. And it's to the point where sometimes when my mom talks to me, she calls me John, my father's name, because I'm so much like my dad. But both oh. parents are so important, even as we age and we have our own families. And even as we enter into our fifth and sixth decade, our parents are still vitally important to us, and people don't realize that. Absolutely. I, I think we've underestimated the impact that parents have. And because of that, um, in many situations, they're pushed away or looked down as secondary. Teachers will say, well, I have your kids for six hours, seven hours a day. I know them better than you. Well, maybe, but no, not really. You have 25 other kids besides my kid if they're in a public or a private school setting, and you're saying you know them better than me? I don't think so. Maybe you know their skill um, uh, ability uh, and, and their, where they are in the range of teaching, but we can't, again, say enough or overemphasize the influence of fathers and mothers in the life of a developing child, as you have just uh, given uh, a story and witness of. Yeah, I want to change the subject just a little bit because there's recent articles out there that the Boy Scouts of America are going bankrupt. And their organization has been on the decline for a long number of years because they've moved away from their founding principles. And there's something to say whether you have organizations specifically for boys as they develop and specifically for girls as they develop. Now, the Girl Scouts have not done that, but the Boy Scouts have, and they're failing. And they actually... They have done studies that found that when boys are interacting with girls, they act and develop differently. But when boys are with boys, boys will be boys. And they also develop in a a more masculine way. Uh, We have allowed these organizations uh, and our schools to interfere with the natural development of the children. And what do we do to correct this? (laughs) No one uh, has more influence on that than fathers. And it's time, dads, if you're listening, to stand up and to affirm both masculinity and femininity. And I'll tell you why. In the 
physiological nature of how things were formed unless you know it's in vitro but there again you need a sperm to unite with the egg it is the father's chromosomal contribution to that zygote the fertilized egg that determines the sex of that child whether it's male or female in like manner it is the father's engagement involvement in the life of the developing child and adolescent that determines their gender identity and security. So we, again, need to look at how this is put not only in a scientific, a scientific physical way, but how this is played out socially. So for dads, they need to, particularly in the pre-adolescent and adolescent years, affirm those traits that they see that are clearly from their uh, uh, eyes that that are masculine and feminine and, and, and bless their children accordingly. Well, it brings me around then to toxic uh, masculinity. You know, how dare you take your son hunting? Uh, how dare you have him help you work on the car? How dare you teach him how to be a boy? How dare you? Well, we have to fight some of these cultural messages, which are just misguided. Um, and to that, I would say, certainly, I, a young woman can go hunting and fishing and, you know, do anything, almost anything a, a guy could do, and vice versa, a guy can do almost anything a girl can do. But to take them and to spend time with them and see them develop uh, in into who they are, as you know them, as a father, is something that we need to remind ourselves of. And, and your involvement in that area will drown out and, and have greater influence in the cultural messages. Uh, now, the cultural winds are strong right now. I know young boys and young girls have icons, and they're doing all sorts of crazy things. But when, when a father and a mother, united if possible, can can set the norms and the values and this is why we do what we do and why we've raised you in this way. It is more long lasting than, than the winds that are blowing right now in culture. Yeah. It's funny because, you know, if you teach your son or daughter how to handle a firearm, you're actually teaching them safety at a very young age. It then becomes ingrained in them, and you'll find that they're not going to go out into a mass bullshit. If you turn around and, and you place them in this environment where all of a sudden you're a victim of everything, then you right. create a toxic environment where we have these attacks on the schools. You know, we've come into a society where everyone is now a victim. There's no more self-sufficiency. Uh, the, the thick skin that we, you and I had as we grew up, these kids today no longer have. It's okay to feel as if everyone is against you. It's okay to, to turn around and demand that you have self-respect but not give it to anyone else in return. Uh, there's a lot of research about fragile families. And fragile families have a myriad of, of challenges. They may grow up with only one parent. They may be below the line uh, in a socioeconomic status. Uh, they, they, they come out with some negatives. They may have some chemical dependencies due to the way that uh, the mother cared or didn't care for herself during pregnancy. And so uh, that has brought 
I, I think, a new sensitivity and awareness. Uh, and what we're learning about the brain and its function, uh, I also believe, is, is something that we need to take note of. Uh, why? Because um, we, you know, uh, don't want to be the ride over the uh, hill and the sunset without sharing the depth of emotion that is there within you for your feelings towards your children, their, their child's mother, their child's father, and, and for who they are. So I think particularly for men, this is one of the new areas that they have grown in. Now, having done that, what do you do and what are your next steps? The next step is preparing as maybe the prior generation did, uh, that child for the crises, the life's challenges they're going to face. Uh, one of the characteristics in a study of strong families that distinguished those that were more well-adjusted is they knew how to deal with crises and learn how to resolve issues in a positive way. I mean, hello, <laughs> life is a crisis sometimes <laughs> every day. And, and you teach those and, and then you're going to prepare them for, the future in a better way than any other thing. Dr. Canfield. Yeah. It's like, critical. Yes. Oh, go ahead, Curtis. Much like you, I, I put a lot of emphasis on the fathers, you know, playing a, a, a major role in the upbringing of their children, especially their sons. But in yes. the case where there aren't a lot of fathers around because of divorce or, you know, it's just like a, one night stand and the father really had no intentions of being a father. How important is it for like an uncle or, or someone like that to, to play like a surrogate father role? Critically important and excellent question. Uh, when a father is not in the child's development deficits, uh, just like, you know, if we had a mother not involved, we'd recognize the deficits that, that are going to be there. Now, Extended family members are the second best, uh, what I say, influences, and they take their shape in this. First, a grandparent. And so grandfathers, listen up. Don't underestimate your value. Don't just retire, go to Florida or California or wherever you are. Uh, there is a role for you to play that we have missed in good old USA. Many of the Asian cultures and even South American and Central American cultures know the value of extended family where we have just kind of sloughed it off. Hey, we did our time. Let's kick back and relax. Let's not do what we, what, what we once did in parenting. Uh, let's just lay back. Well, if, a, if your grandson or granddaughter doesn't have a father or mother, we've got to step up. Second, those extended family members, uncles. Older brothers are huge influences. So this is a time when we can't underestimate or uh, miss the power of the clan. Now, beyond that, there are other surrogates that are in healthy positions. I mentioned a few, the, the role model of teachers. I wish we had more men teaching in the public school at the elementary level. Would that be a game changer? You better believe it. And uh, what about, you know, the, the value of coaches? What about, you know, those that are serving as, as a, a, a scoutmaster or those who are pastoral or ministerial figures? They have a tremendous influence. Wise single mothers, they don't wake up every morning and say, well, I just 
thank God I'm a single mother. No, they're all, all the time on the hunt. Who is another family member or influence that I can bring along uh, to, to encourage my child in, in that uh, masculine role, what, what men should be and how they should live? Yeah, the influence of grandparents and extended family is important. And unfortunately, in today's society, and I'm guilty of it, you know, when my husband and I had a chance to retire, we moved out of New York and came down to the South. But that was for financial reasons. Just New York was getting way too expensive. We couldn't afford it anymore. You know, but we are a mobile society. It used to be you would grow up, and in the same town, your aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents, they all lived in the same town or at least near enough that you could visit each other. But in today's society, you've got ones in California, ones in Texas, ones up in Alaska. We're a highly mobile society, more than any other culture. Yes, and, and, and there are... Some tools, uh, FaceTime, Skype, uh, you know, we've lost the art of writing a handwritten letter. Well, what, what's that from? Oh, that was from another century. We don't do that anymore. But that contact is critical. With uh, Instagram, with Snapchat, you can stay involved in your grandchildren's life. Uh, one of the things that I've done is amassed uh, a, a ton of information, practical tips, research-based stuff at grandkidsmatter.org. That's grandkidsmatter.org. And it's there to help grandparents, grandmothers like yourself, stay in tune and in touch with the issues their grandchildren are facing. I just realized I'm looking at the show description. I had grands matter instead of grandkids. I'm putting the kids in there now so I have the correct uh, link to your uh, website which I just corrected. Thank you for letting me know about that. Because, you know, most of the listeners come in and listen to the podcast in the archives, so I wanted to make sure I had the correct uh, link for them to go to to visit your site. I also have your KenCanfield.com link up there, too. Uh, But Yeah, and another. It's so much fun talking to you, uh, Doctor. Yes, and and another for for fathers that I think is helpful is Fathers.com, the National Center for Fathering at Fathers.com has a, a host of other uh, helpful insights on every part and fathering situation that, that is out there. So uh, it's great to visit with you, and, and may your radio listeners and podcast listeners be encouraged because you're speaking about the right things, essential things that will make a difference. Well, well thank you very much, you. Dr. Kinsel, and you know you're always welcome back on the show anytime. Okay. Thank you so much. Bye. Take care. All right. I see we've got additional callers up in the uh, studio. So if one of them, Lieutenant Colonel, please press one on your keypad, or if you're in Skype, just hit the one so I know that it's you. Uh, There we go. Uh, We got it. Here we go. And I'm probably going to mispronounce your name, so please, I apologize. You can hit me with a wet noodle a thousand times. Uh, We've got Lieutenant Colonel Sargent. Sangari, a retired U.S. Army. Did I say that correctly, sir? Mm, that's absolutely correct. So that saves a wet noodle from getting punished. <laughs> well, welcome aboard to Southern Sense. I'm your hostess uh, with the most is the radio chick, along with my co-host, retired U.S. Navy, uh, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Uh, welcome aboard, sir. It's good to be here. 
Great having you. And I apologize. Um, Jackie was asking if I could do the video with Skype, and I'm too stupid. I haven't been able to figure that out yet, and I think I have to switch computers in order for me to do that. And I haven't gotten that talented. So hopefully by the next time I have you on, I'll have that up and working so that I can have your smiling face side by side with mine. But as it is now, I've got your picture uh, scrolling on the screen uh, at this moment. So don't forget, you can always get the video from YouTube uh, and Facebook to put up onto your website. And your website happens to be nec.se.com. Tell us about your website. Um, it's the Near East Center for Strategic Engagement, so nec-se. Uh, and uh, I established the Near East Center for Strategic Engagement uh, upon retiring from the U.S. military in 2014 on September 11 in honor of the 3,000 Americans that were murdered on our soil. And since then, we've been uh, really an operational and uh, strategic think tank looking at uh, the issues in the Middle East specifically. Uh, We have also uh, done white papers on what is happening in Southeast Asia and also um, uh, supported the uh, Japanese PSIA, especially when they had their two Uh, individuals that were uh, captured by ISIS in uh, Syria. So um, we're trying our best to make sure that we keep the site open so that viewers and people can understand through link analysis how nations talk to each other. And uh, we've been uh, pretty much on the forefront as far as the lead is concerned, what is happening within the region. The operational piece comes for we support uh, the uh, Assyrian military forces that fought in Syria and also in Iraq against ISIS, the Assyrian Christians, from 2014 to 2017. Uh, we are uh, still uh, supporting uh, some force structures that are there through United Assyrian Appeal, which I founded also uh, in um, March of 2015, which became a uh, 501c3 charitable organization in 2016, where we give money to the multi-families of the certain Christians that are fighting against ISIS in both uh, Iraq and Syria. Uh, and uh, we've been able to at least have some impact uh, for, within the previous administration, current administration, as far as it comes to trying to explain to the systems, in this case, National Security Council, the Office of the Secretary of Defense, uh, and also the uh, State Department, specifically the Near East, uh, as far as the Iraqi and Syria desk, as to what is happening and what should be done to be able to preserve the root of Christianity in the Middle East. Well, what is going on in the Middle East with the destruction of Christianity? And the world is not doing anything about it. You had uh, the uh, Christians that were stuck in the mountain um, Oh, my goodness. I just had a major brain fart. I apologize. Um, They were up, stuck on the top of the mountains and surrounded by ISIS. Uh, This was about maybe, what, two years ago. And you didn't hear anything about this in mainstream media at all. As a matter of fact, the Anakin Bishop uh, came to our church, and we raised funds to get them food and supplies and tents up there. Uh, but no one's talking about the destruction of Christianity in what once was the cradle of Christianity. Um, it's still the cradle of Christianity. The the biggest thing I try to explain to our uh, leaders in Congress and Senate um, that, uh, look, once you get rid of the root of Christianity, Christianity 
is going to wither away. And it's not that the branches aren't there, but the root is the base. That's where it was established. Uh, that's where you have to have a presence. Uh, you know, Jesus spoke Aramaic. And uh, the language itself changes the philosophy of how we look at the uh, uh, religion in its entirety. Uh, a lot of the traditions that existed, uh, especially in the stories that you read in the Bible, if you look at those traditions from an Aramaic perspective, from an Assyrian perspective, of how they lived their daily lives, even to include how they ate their suppers and uh, how the either the strongest son or the uh, son that was the most trouble uh, would sit at the right hand of the father for him to be able to have that discussion how if you wanted to speak to your father you sat at a tea side table when you were out into the in the villages celebrating the various different festivals for christianity and that you would have to have that dialogue to your dad and possibly to the person who sits to his left to the right and how that actually if you honestly read through the last supper story you see that those traditions that the Assyrians practice literally are lived in into the stories that explain and uh, give to us an understanding of what Jesus was doing and the traditions that he was practicing while he was on earth. If you get rid of that, you have completely gotten rid of the root. And regardless of how strong the possible branches of Christianity are, uh, which we have multiple of them, they will die out eventually if they do not understand where the root comes from. And that's true, because right now um, there is a split in a lot of uh, the sects, including my own church, uh, where we stay with the gospel as it was written, and we're more conservative in our beliefs, Uh, whereas now you have the other side where they're allowing uh, same-sex pastors, they're performing same-sex marriages, they're doing things in the that are forbidden in the Bible. And we're saying, wait a minute, you may love the sinner, but hate the sin. So we're welcoming of all people, but don't make us change our beliefs, which is what they're trying to do. They're trying to make us progressive. And that's not the true root, as you said, the root of Christianity. We need to adhere to that root. Well, the, the problem is that they don't understand the root. They have, they don't understand the language. They don't understand what certain words mean. Even every name that is being given in the Bible has an actual meaning behind it. You know, in English, if I say, say Thomas, uh, and somebody says, my name is Thomas, and I say, why well, is your name Thomas? They will tell you that, well, my name is Thomas because I am, uh, uh, you know, a Christian. But they do not have the explanation behind it. Uh, Thomas in uh, in Assyrian, in Aramaic, means uh, Tumumla, basically the one that finished it. Um, and when you say Jerusalem, uh, you know, people will say, well, and it means the name of the uh, capital of uh, Israel. But Jerusalem means uh, the, the place of peace, the root of peace uh, in, uh, in Assyrian, in Aramaic. And if you understand these things, that changes not just your approaches to foreign policy. It changes your approach as to what is the essence of this particular religion that I'm practicing. Uh, even in the smallish, when you have your prayers, when we say the Our Father, uh, there's a difference between saying, do, you know, do not lead us into temptation, where in Aramaic you say, do not burden me more than I am burdened already. 
it changes the entire doctrine of the church specifically and how the church looks at these issues that we deal with on a social basis every day, even within the U.S. So you got to preserve the root. And ISIS figured that the branches will not be able to survive if they kill, kill the root. That's why they have spent their time and energies on trying to ensure that the root is destroyed. That's why they have spent their time and energy ensuring that anything that has to do with the ties to the Assyrian uh, Empire uh, in the past in the Assyrians was destroyed, to include the city-state of Numerut that was attacked and destroyed, or the walls of Nineveh. And the reason for that is that they understood that if you erase the root, then the branches will eventually die out or bicker amongst each other and will never be able to understand uh, where they originate from or why were they uh, initially established. Well, it's also the reason why they're, they're fighting over the Temple Mount, where you have actually uh, Muslims attacking visitors to the Temple Mount, saying, you know, you're trespassing on our portion of it. They want to claim it completely for Islam, but so far you know, they can't claim the entire Temple Mount. And this is important because, if, again, if they can destroy the root of our faith, then they can destroy our faith. Uh, yeah, and it doesn't help that we don't understand uh, politically from our perspective what are the important things we have to do in order to make sure we ally with the right people uh, in the Middle East. As an example, uh, you mentioned the Temple Mount. Uh, one of the um, allies that U.S. constantly gives weapons of support to is the Sunni Muslim Kurds, both in Iraq and Syria. Um, but at the heart of it, Salah Hadin himself was a Kurd from Tikrit, and his uh, grandchildren are the same grandchildren that we are giving weapons and arms to. We say they're our best allies there, but uh, one of the major groups that constantly is taking land and support away from the Christian Assyrians and fighting over what we call Assyrian Plain, which is the heart of their homeland, is the Sunni Muslim Kurds who in World War One. Uh, were part of the genocide that uh, took place against the Assyrian Christians, the Armenians, and the Greeks. 750,000 Assyrians were massacred, majority of them not by the Ottomans, but by the Sunni Kurds that actually sacked their villages. In 1933, the massacre of Semele, which is the Assyrian uh, National Observant Day uh, in August, about the genocide that took place against them, Although it was the Iraqi army that conducted the attacks, majority of the individuals who sacked the Assyrians and killed them in Somalia were Sunni Muslim Kurds. So we turn around in uh, 2014 as the same individuals abandoned the battlefield in Assyrian of a plain, the Peshmerga did, allowing both the Yazidis and the Assyrian Christians basically to be killed at the hands of ISIS. Uh, we turn around against the give them weapons and support, recognition, and we do not give the recognition to the minorities, whether it be the Yazidis or the Assyrian Christians, which those lands truly belong to them. So this is another problem that we constantly have to deal with because, as I said, a lot of people in the administration, both previous and even some in current, do not know the important pieces that you need to tie into individuals, or of Judeo-Christian value and belief systems as you in order to be able to protect your interests in the long run. 
No. I wanted to ask you about Syria, because right now there's a battle between Congress and President Trump. Trump wants to pull out, and Congress is saying no. What is actually going on here? Because there's so many conflicting stories, some false, deliberately false, and some true. But where do we stand? Uh, if pulling out 2,000 advisors is going to collapse your foreign policy, you don't have a foreign policy to begin with. And the issue in Syria is that President Trump uh, went in to defeat ISIS on the battlefield. And ISIS on the battlefield has been defeated. The ideology of ISIS will never be defeated. It exists. For 2,000 years, the Syrians have been massacred for their Christian faith on a 50-year cycle. And the same philosophy that exists is the philosophy that uh, a doctor who's been commissioned in the U.S. military uses to kill our own soldiers uh, on a military base. The same philosophy that has a uh, individual with high degrees in uh, London uh, participating in the bombing of uh, railways. The same philosophy that has literally burned uh, and killed multiple individuals, even from Islamic faiths. Uh, within the region and outside the region. Um, so uh, the problem we have is, again, I go back to the previous comments I made. You have individuals who have a lot of special interests, and a lot of those are tied to where we put our monies in and investments in. If you give U.S. dollars to a, a Kurdish faction in Iraq and you make them billionaires and millionaires, uh, they will take that money, bring it back, invest in lobby groups, and every weekend there are basically parties uh, where congressmen are invited, money is put into their coffers to try to get them to force U.S. policy to give a homeland for the Kurds. That means you get to cut out a piece out of Syria, out of southern Turkey, out of northern Iraq, uh, and out of uh, western Iran. Well, that's not going to happen. The problem we run into is that the congressmen who are friends with these individuals are going to lobby for their wants and desires that may not be in our interest. As soon as we decided to leave northern uh, Syria, uh, the one thing that our supposed allies came to the table with was a card saying that we're going to use the uh, card to bring the Soviets and ally with them if you leave us. We don't have true partners in the region. Individuals that we have as our allies are interested and our money, but we'll never win their hearts. So if we are going to solve our issues with our foreign policy in the region, we have to truly find partners that are of our like mind, like spirit, and work with them to be able to establish a footprint that is going to be enduring within the region. Lieutenant Colonel. Well, how do you do that? Uh, go, uh, go ahead, Curtis. Yeah, you made a poignant ahead, point there. Sure. You made a poignant point when you mentioned that you can kill a person on the battlefield, but not the ideology. And what my question is, if we cannot defeat or get rid of the ideology, is there some way we can replace it with something else? Uh, yes and no. You could replace it. Uh, uh, there's a lot of people, as, as of today, in Iran, the largest uh, going religion is the Christian religion in Iran itself. A lot of Persians are uh, uh, becoming uh, Christians. 
Uh, that's just the difference in ideology. However, their roots still is a root that is tied to a religion they were born in. Uh, the concept that you have to apply is understanding how they work together. As an example, uh, when we were asked about the co- uh, constant conflict between the Sunni Muslim Kurds and also the Arabs in Iraq, the Muslim Arabs, it's very simple. It's a seven-year bloodbath. It will never set itself. The only ones who have always been that kind of a glue in between, and as uh, even the uh, uh, president of Egypt stated, the glue that keeps the Middle East together is that Judeo-Christian philosophy of those Christians that live in those countries. The Sunni Muslim Kurd will never trust an Iraqi Arab Muslim, whether he is uh, Sunni or Shia. Uh, uh, Arab Muslim uh, Sunni will never trust a Persian and vice versa. However, all of them constantly, as much as they attack the Christians, covet the Christians. Why? Because the Christians have a certain philosophy that they stand with their friends, whoever those friends are. And when it comes to negotiating together or with each other, they usually use the Christians to have those discussions because the Christian is a neutral force and factor. And so the Christian becomes a unifying factor. Now, when you take those Syrian Christians as being an ethnicity that has in the past established an empire in the region, brought language to the region, brought philosophies to the region that we even practice today in our constitutions, uh, that particular uh, type of an uh, ethnical group is where we should invest our dollars. And we don't even need to invest our dollars, just empower them. And they have worked within the region without our support and have held themselves for thousands of years. I think if we do that, then you will start slowly seeing that you could manage and control that philosophy, at least within the region. And if you're successful to do that there in Iraq, in Syria, in the Middle East, then you will see the effects here in the States. Well, it's it's funny because when Christianity did prosper, say, for example, in Egypt or in Turkey, the countries flourished. And you had Muslims and Christians living side by side. And it it would be as if, you know, if we fight, then we lose this prosperity. And it's true. If we pour our efforts not into the Arabics and the Muslims, we pour into the Christians that are there, we will then force a peace. You you will reset everything as it should be. You know, in Isaiah, it says if you want it to be a blessing on this earth, you have to have an Assyria, you have to have an Egypt, you have to have an Israel. Uh, the one location where the Jews of Iran and Iraq, before they were pushed out of those countries because of the establishment of the state of Israel, lived were in the Assyrian villages. They live not on the outskirts of those certain Christian villages, not in their own villages, but internal, inside of those villages, because the people who kept the Jews alive in Iran and in Iraq were the Assyrian Christians. That's where they live. Now, this group of individuals has negotiated the landscape for thousands of years, and they're still doing it today. There were a million plus in 2003. When we went in, and NATO went in, and Europe went in, and all the major powers went in. 
they slowly were massacred by Islamic radicals who couldn't reach out and kill an American, maybe in the United States, so they took it out on those Assyrian Christians on the ground. And we are maybe close to 200,000 remaining in the region. But that 200,000 is still remaining in the region. And who recruits them to be part of their military force structure? The Peshmerga does. The Iraqi Arabs do. Uh, the Persians do. Uh, all the major non-Christian forces use them because they can trust them. So if this people on the ground, as much as they are religiously different, as much as they are at times have been enemies of the Christianity, are the ones who trust them, then I think we should trust them too and spend some time to empower them like we have empowered all these other groups. And I think you'll see a reset in the Middle East. Well, I'm going to change this up a little bit. I want to ask you about China. Uh, now, for a long number of years, Christianity has been growing rather fast in China. And for the longest time, uh, the Catholic Church was was and is still controlled by the uh, Communist Party. Now, the Pope just recently went over there and acknowledged the Catholic Church there and is still allowing the political leaders in China to choose the bishop and other uh, ministries within the Chinese Catholic Church, which is, to me, is absolutely insane. Absolutely insane. And those that are not part of the Chinese Roman Catholic Church, the other Christians, are being persecuted. They have to do their worships inside houses. As a matter of fact, I've got two very, very dear friends of mine over in China. They've been there for the past year on a mission uh, to help with growing Christianity there, these home churches. Uh, What do you see for the future of Christianity in China? Will the Catholic Church there finally fail, or because the Pope endorsed it, will it expand and push out the other roots of Christianity in China? The Catholic Church doesn't have any roots in the Middle East uh, historically. It uh, it's try, has tried to establish its roots in the Middle East. How did it do it? Uh, it converted Christians of the Middle East to become Catholics. Um, as far as Iraq is concerned, take a look at the Assyrian Church. It created a split in the Assyrian Church where you have a group that is called Chaldean, which are Catholics. I myself am a Cal- Catholic from uh, from Iran. Uh, my wife is from the Church of the East, Nestorian Church, which is the Assyrian Church itself. Uh, so my family went through that conversion when the Catholic Church came in. Uh, as far as my uh, grandparents and my uh, dad was concerned. Now, uh, same thing. If you look at what they do today in uh, northern Iraq, they established a major university uh, in uh, northern Iraq uh, under the supporting guidance of the Sunni Muslim Kurds, in this case, the Kurdish regional government at that time, which today is referred to as the Iraqi Kurdish North. They didn't establish that church there in order to convert uh, our Kurds to become Catholics. They established it there so they could convert other Christians to be part of the Catholic Church, so they can expand their footprint and their base in the region. They have tried to apply the same formula in China. That's why it doesn't work. If you go back to the historical roots of the Chinese Christian church, 
And again, I go back to why it is so important to keep the ritual of Christianity alive. Uh, we have videos, we have uh, um, actual stone tablets that show that it was the Assyrian Christian church that expanded Christianity, not just into China, but also into Japan. Uh, when I was meeting with the National City Council May of last year, uh, I posed them a question, especially with China's influence growing in the Middle East, knowing that if the Russians and the Americans keep on beating each other up in the Middle East, that China's waiting to come in and pick up the pieces. I said there's 43 million Christians in China, and they're all historically tied to the Assyrian Church of the East. What is your plan when China decides to use them to take over the Middle East? Are you going to do anything about it? And it was dead silence. To this day, I don't think there's a plan from the U.S. side as to how to counter that. And I have told them multiple times, if the Christians of the Middle East do not get the support and the uh, requirements that they need to survive, you cannot blame them if they turn around and start working with the Chinese. And the Chinese are smart enough to use that to their advantage to control Iraq and Syria in the future. The Catholic Church going there and allowing the Chinese to select their bishops and their leadership does not bode well for them because you are basically building your church under the wrong cornerstone and their pretext. And by doing so, you'll end up losing in the long run. Well, China is not just the Middle East. If you really look at what the Chinese are doing, how much they've expanded into the African continent. Country after country, they've been lending them money, building stores, and pipelines, and everything else. The Chinese have a huge hand in the African continent. And they've also expanded here on the other side of the Atlantic into some of the Caribbean islands, South America, heavy-handed Cuba, Venezuela. They're all over the place. And how much property does China own here within the United States on every single coast? Um, they even handle several of our ports. The influence of China on the world stage is a lot bigger than people realize. It is large. And one of the major pieces I looked at was what was happening with the Rohingya genocide. And going back to a year ago in January when I came back, uh, I said that, a major Chinese company is at the heart of what is happening with the Rohingya genocide, where they are basically have general officers and the Burmese military still on their payroll. They are building their pipeline. They're displacing all the Muslims into Thailand, which is destabilizing southern Thailand, in order to be able to block our abilities from the U.S. side to be able to control the shipping lanes in South Pacific. And if they're successful in doing so, uh, that means they're going to be able to control 70% of the global uh, shipping lanes for how we actually are able to keep ourselves uh, at a footprint where we are a global competitive against them. President Trump has decided to defeat China and Africa, which they have a lot of sunk costs, but they're going to flip that. And if they lose Africa after they have put so much money into it, then they will uh, definitely use the Middle East to their advantage. And once we lose our footprint in the Middle East, we lose our tactical capability. Two years from now, the Haifa port in Israel is going to become a Chinese port. And part of the reason is because China, 100 years ago, 
came up with a plan. They're 25-plus years ahead on that plan, and they opened up the doors to both Israel and other nations that we hadn't even started developing a relationship with at the stage we have today, understanding and knowing that, you know, I have a large population, and this large population is going to reach so many numbers in so many years, and I have a right in order to be able to have a say when it comes to global politics. Unfortunately, in the last administration, uh, when uh, China proposed their concept of a two-world order, the previous administration signed off on it and started pulling assets out, both out of Africa uh, and also Middle East, in support of that concept. So there's a lot of work that has to be done by the current administration to be able to reverse a buck against that in order to stop the Chinese trend in the long run. And you're right, when it comes to our ports, even the Puget Sound, where we have to push majority of our assets if there's a shooting war against the Chinese, is uh, literally controlled on both sides by Chinese companies, which by our laws can purchase and own those territories. Uh, If you look at the modern um, uh, technology that is out there, a lot of our Navy SEALs, Delta Forces, our special units can't even operate certain places in Southeast Asia because there's so much information that's been collected on the biometrics by the Chinese companies on our people starting at a young age. So they're able to crack the code as to who is operating where in what region. And we have to come up with new technologies to be able to defeat all that. It's amazing. It is amazing. And the influence of China here in the United States is is outrageous, you know, not just with the ports and with the businesses that they own here, the buildings, uh, also the Confucius schools. This is something else that no one is talking about. And I was very suspicious of it because they opened one of them here in South Carolina out in Hilton Head. And I came very, very suspicious about it. And I said, well, why would they have these Confucius schools and now, not only are they controlling parts of our government and parts of our property here in the United States, they are now starting to control our children, getting them at an early age. Um, as I briefed the uh, leadership in Thailand, I said, your kids are watching Chinese cartoons. Uh, so from an early age, China's job is to affect them even at that level. Uh, and with the schools... But the philosophies are being taught is just an effect. And they use uh, still propagandas, uh, campaigns uh, like the uh, Comfort Woman uh, campaign, which uh, has been debunked a long time ago as to the realities of what that was uh, to divide uh, Korea against Japan in order to be able to support themselves. Uh, We even have gotten politicians that uh, have been supported by Chinese uh, companies, which uh, have pushed for the comfort women statues uh, in California and have at the same time um, supported uh, our allies, uh, even overseas, like Australia. Uh, A lot of the uh, various different nations that we have to deal with, whether it be the Pakistan, majority of the Pakistan parliament is on Chinese payroll, to include majority of the extraction of uh, resources out of Australia or through the same companies are participating in the genocide uh, in uh, uh, Burma uh, and the same companies operate here at a 
uh, when when I was in uh, Kuwait as a uh, uh, host nation affairs director, uh, China uh, built a ammunition factory just across from our golf balls, which receive all our strategic communications uh, from all the operations that we do when in the CENTCOM. So it is a big threat against us. How did we defeat it? Uh, they're ahead by 25 years on their plan. There is a way to defeat them. We can't talk about it here on this program, but it's a matter of just trying to get our uh, at least uh, congressional leaders to keep their hands off of uh, the specific monies and donations that come to them either directly or indirectly through some uh, of the global Chinese uh, uh, companies. Well, Lieutenant Colonel, it has been a pleasure to have you with us. We've got our next guest up in the studio. People can go to your website, which is nec-se.com, and see all the hard work you do. Thank you for your service to this nation, sir. We owe you a great debt, and God bless you for the hard work you do on behalf of the United States and Christianity. No, thank you very much, and thank you for the time. And uh, I think working together we can uh, solve a lot of these issues um, but we just have to be focused on trying to do the best we can in order to support our country. That's true. So and we welcome you back on the show anytime. Have a great afternoon, sir. Thank you. God bless. All right. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Sangari, check him out. It is nec-se.com. And if my computer is going to behave, here we go. want to welcome back onto the show one of our favorite, Dr. Carol Swain. Good afternoon, Dr. Carol. How are you today? I'm doing great. It's my pleasure uh, to be on your show again. How's it going, Carol? Oh, we always... I'm doing great. (laughs) (laughs) It's always fun to have you on here. You know, um, there's so much to be talking about that's going on in the news, and uh, we switched our show from two times a week to just on Fridays because Fridays, it's like the week all winds up and just on Friday. Everything seems to happen last minute. A uh, good example was the raid on Roger Stone's house. I mean, is, can our government, our FBI, get any crazier? I can tell you that it made me think about government service because I don't come from a wealthy family. If I were um, involved with the government and someone accused me of a crime and I had to hire hire an attorney, I would not have the millions of dollars to defend myself. And I would imagine that it discourages a lot of people just watching that that happened to someone and that they have to spend their life savings to try to clear their name. It's very frightening how easily the government can destroy someone's life. It's what is amazing, and you know, General Flynn's life has been destroyed. Uh, he ended up just throwing his hands up in the air because they bankrupted him, and then they tried to go after his son. So he had a choice: give his son up, or end up pleading guilty. And the worst part is, is that every single charge they had against him for lying was based upon a falsified fire warrant. So you well, know, he should never have been in, it, it's fruit of the poisonous tree. And they're going after Roger Stone again using fruit of the poisonous tree. And now Jerome Kersey, God bless this man, you know, he's such a sweetheart. I've known him for about uh, eight or nine years 
And he said, the heck with you, I'm kind of countersuit. So it looks like they may be backing off on him. So instead they go after Rogers. Well, I mean, they can go after anyone, but it seems like they only go after conservatives. Well, that's what everyone's now up in arms about. And my Senator Lindsey Graham, I'm still shaking my head wondering where he ended up growing a pair. Uh, It's the first time I've seen him actually acting like the way he claims (laughs) to be a conservative. Uh, He he was so funny. I have a theory about that. He was ranting about this. (laughs) I'll ask you about that. Uh, But he turns around and he says, listen, I'm an attorney. He was a JAG attorney. Uh, He wasn't a judge advocate. He was a judge. And he goes, here's a quarter. Call the attorney and let him turn himself in. There was no need for the showboating, which it turns out they colluded with CNN to have exclusive uh, video being shot about that. But give me your theory about Lindsey Graham. Well, it reminds me of a biblical scripture about Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And it was like as long as John McCain was in the Senate, Lindsey Graham could not be a conservative. And so in the year that John McCain died, Lindsey Graham became a conservative. I feel the same way. Well, I, I think, I think there's some credence to that. Side of the, <laughs> I Go ahead, know which side of the bread the butter was on when uh, Trump came into office, honestly. And, you know, my personal theory is he may be angling for a seat on the Supreme Court. You know, because as I said, he was a judge in the uh, JAG office. So there may be some angle in that one. I, I know Trey Gowd is aiming for a seat in the Supremes. Uh, so maybe that's the end result. But, you know, here well, we have the overreach of, it, the, F- of the FBI. Go ahead. Go ahead. I mean, if they're angling for go ahead, Carol. the Supreme Court, I wouldn't care if they were going to be true north. <laughs> no, but that's the problem. We don't know. Uh, look what happened with uh, oh, good Lord, John Roberts. You know, here you thought you were going to have an ultra conservative, and then he helped support Obamacare. But uh, ah man, there's so much going on the, on a Friday, and I'm just I don't trust the Ivy League. I don't trust the Ivy League for the Supreme Court. I think we need to go to you know, University of Virginia, go to University of Michigan, go to some of the state schools, and we might be able to pick some Supreme Court justices that understand the American people. Yeah, we keep on going into the same pool, the same swamp, and pulling people out of that, which has given us the Mueller investigation on this Russian alleged collusion that is going on. It's, it's a three-ring circus. You know, it's the same pool of people that they go one administration after another and after another, and they just pass these swamp creatures around. I know. It's so now, irritating. Um, I'm going to change this a little bit. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead, Carol. No, I'm not saying it's so irritating what we watch. Exactly. 
and as I said, the same people, Comey, um, Mueller, Rosenstein, or you know, they just go from one administration to the other. They start off in the Bush administration, go to the Clinton administration, back to the Bush administration, then to the Obama administration. They just keep using the same swamp creatures, and we've got to drain it. And you're right. We've right. got to reach outside yeah. the gene pool. I got a question for Carol. Go ahead, Curtis. Yeah, what do you think of this influx of um, candidates on on the left, especially um, black um, liberal candidates? I mean, it's a circus, but I think it's going to be fun to watch the fireworks. They will annihilate each other. Do you think it would be anything like Trump? Yeah. I was just wondering if you think it would be anything like Trump had to um, endure with 17 um, candidates. Probably, but I think that for us conservatives, it's going to be it's going to have high interest. <laughs> <I laughs> this like election that. season is going to be the gift that keeps on giving. That's for sure. Because <laughs> you've got uh, Cory Booker just threw his hat in the ring, and that, this amazes me. Here, Spartacus. Here, Cory Booker still has charges pending against him for sexual assault. There is a male waiter that videoed Cory Booker assaulting him. He's got charges pending, and he thinks he can run for president and not have this brought up to the forefront? Let him bring it on. Carol? I mean, let him bring it on. The left will show the American people how morally bankrupt they are. And they are. Yeah, and like I said, these people are now the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, you have the two uh, Muslim congresswomen that are calling for a 90% tax on the upper 90%. But I, I hear them all say, oh, but it's going to be for those people that are earning so much money or have a worth of so much money. But isn't this the same argument they used when they passed the amendment to create the income tax? They said, oh, it's only going to be those that are in the highest tax bracket. It'll never come down to the average person. Is this the same argument we're hearing? It's kind of like uh, you can keep your own doctor. (laughs) It is. It is. And as a matter of fact, they're doing that right now. They're trying to kill the medical and the insurance industry with this Medicare, Medicaid for all. Now, Medicare, we pay into Medicaid, the government pays for. Oh, wait a minute. How do you get the government to pay for Medicaid? You've got. I'm going to tell you about Medicare because I'm I'm going to be 65 in March. And I've just, uh, I always thought Medicare was something. Well, (laughs) (laughs) thank you Um, I thought Medicare was something that I actually thought it was free was based on your income and my premiums will be substantial because my my income was high two years ago and the most doctors don't take Medicare and so you have to have a supplement and so I will be paying you know, maybe a couple of hundred dollars for a supplement as well as several hundred dollars for Medicare that no one wants to take. That's true. And that's you true. would think that would be that's something. You, you, and can you, you imagine that would when you get Medicare? Would be I'm getting feedback. Medicare for 
or Medicare for all would be no no care for all is basically essentially what they're going to be doing. And yet the average person thinks, oh, I'm going to get this free medical insurance through Medicaid, Medicare. But when it comes down to the reality, uh, they'll completely foul up and destroy the entire medical system within the United States. Right, Carol? It will. It, it absolutely will. And a lot of people that I know are going to some kind of system where they pay a flat fee to physicians that don't take insurance. So they may pay two or $300 a month. Their doctor wow. is available to them whenever they need it. And then if they get a catastrophic type of disease, they have a, a backup insurance policy for catastrophic events. But otherwise, they are not uh, doing insurance at all. They are paying to be part of a private physician's network. Well, actually, that's something that I'm part of. It's called MDVIP, and I had gotten in at a time where they said, whatever insurance you have, we will accept, as long as you're a patient with this doctor prior to you joining this thing. And it, there's a cutoff period after that, and then they would take no more patients. So I am one of those that are on a concierge service. Uh, but because I was disabled and entered in the line of duty as as a police officer, I ended up on Medicare because of the disabilities. So my Medicare has been grandfathered in. In the interest, because of New York City Police Department, they supplied the additional supplemental insurance. So I don't have to do like you do, Carol, go and spend several hundred dollars a month uh, for additional uh, supplemental insurance. But I do take that same couple hundred dollars a month to pay for the concierge. So well, in a, a way, that's camper. my supplemental insurance. I'm not a happy camper, and I just found out, you know, the truth about Medicare. And the reason I didn't know, I come from a poor family, and the members of my family, they always, uh, they never had to pay. I didn't realize that it was different for people that had income. <laughs> <laughs> and that's true. The difference between Medicaid and Medicare. Medicaid is uh, state-run and paid by federal and state tax dollars. Uh, so no, but Medicare. Said, oh, yeah, this sounds great. But my mother well, then, is there's on different Medicare. levels of Medicare, yeah. And she doesn't yeah. have to pay anything, so but I can tell you about Social Security. Social Security, I take care of my mother. They impute the value of my room and board as income for her. How do you like that? Wow. Oh, nice. Oh, nice. That is nice. And then you wonder why people end up going on welfare rather than working because that way they can say, I have no income. This is this is well, absolutely amazing, yeah. the truth that comes out. If my mother absolutely. was with one of my relatives that had, uh, you know, low income or no income, and there are some, then uh, she would get SSI, which is a supplement. But because she lives with me, they take my income and the value of my home and impute that as income to her. And so the last time I saw that calculation, they calculated that the value of my room and board to her is like $700 a month. Wow. Wow. Which means so that what are if your she options? has an income, then any benefit she has gets cut, right? Well, she yeah. uh, she doesn't get she gets basic uh, social security based on her husband. 
she never worked. So she gets that, and she's still indigent, but they're taking the value of my uh, room and board because I take care of her at home and imputing that as income, which means that she would not get a supplement that she would qualify for based on her own income. So, Carol, um, does that mean you have to stay in the workforce a little longer? No, I mean, I, I am. I have taken early retirement, but I'm working really hard. I have uh, a podcast that I've been that I've been doing since last August, and I also have a new opportunity for that podcast to air in the Washington D.C. media market, and so I'm very excited about that. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because we have, you know, I always put up a description with a link to your website on our show page so that when people go into the archives, they can see it and go to your website, which is your name, carolmswan.com. Um, tell us about this podcast because it sounds well, exciting. Well, the website for people who want to hear my podcast or see my articles is bethepeoplenews.com. BeThePeopleNews.com, and that's the main site for my podcast and my articles. And the CarolMSwain.com website, you know, it has more information about me personally, but also a link to Be The People. Actually, the graphics I have here on Blog Talk Radio also flashing up on uh, YouTube and Facebook has your picture with that podcast information on it. So I got you covered both ways, Carol. Sounds great. (laughs) Oh, man. It sounds exciting. Now, I want to ask you about some of the people on the left, the gifts that keep on giving. You have um, Okeo, I can't pronounce her name, AOC, our new congresswoman out of New York City. Alexandria. Uh, She's telling everyone that Alexandria. Yeah, that one. Okay, yeah, Cortez. Uh, she's claiming that the world is going to end in 12 years because fossil fuels are killing us. She wants to destroy the fossil fuel industry. Uh, otherwise, the world will cease to exist in 12 years. Now, what do you say to someone like that? I say that that young lady takes herself too seriously and she needs to go. First, her Boston University degree needs to be revoked. They need to take that degree back, but she needs to go <laughs> educate herself. She's an embarrassment to her generation. Yeah, we heard something similar well, from know, Al Gore if you try- about the ice caps. <laughs> Remember that one? But you, you think about it, you know, how many how many things use fossil fuel? How many pet chemicals we use in everyday life? I mean, from the makeup you wear to the shampoo to the chair you sit in to the smart device, every single thing that exists today has some form of petrochemical in there. So if we kill the fossil fuel industry, what do we do? Go back to the cave age? They don't think that far ahead. No, they don't. Well, and it looks like we've got a caller in on the stu- studio, Curtis. Let's, let's see if we can get this caller in. And it looks like we've got a Skype caller You're in on the air live with Southern Sense. I'm your hostess, uh, Annie Gabellas, the radio chick, along with my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett, and our guest is Dr. Carol Swain. To whom am I speaking? Yes, my dear. You should know me by now. This is Mike from Singapore. 
Oh, Singapore. Hi, Mike. You have a question for our guest, Dr. Carol Swain? Yeah, I mean, you see, humanity is in going to be extinction one way to another. So we don't have much time. We must, uh, you know, uh, the climate change, and look at this, half of United States is in, in ice age right now. More than 100 million people, they have no access to anything, no electric, no nothing, because and, and food shortages right now uh, reported in middle in United States. So, and we have had many earthquakes, 6.6 .6 right now, 10 minutes ago in Mexico. So, we are the all the, you know, are we have to go through catastrophe to be united together? I mean, we need a uniter that unite left, right, middle, everybody, we unite together for the same good cause. The cause is surviving of United States of America. If we I don't would do say, that... So, you, of course... Go ahead, Carol. I would Go ahead. say, I would say that, um, that human beings lack the ability to solve their own problems. And as a Christian... You know, we have the Bible, and it tells us how the world is going to end and when uh, it, that will happen, and it also gives us the warning sign. And many of us, you know, who are people of faith in the Christian religion, we believe, you know, that we are, you know, approaching the last days because of what we see taking place in the world. But we look to Jesus, and we don't believe that human beings are going to be able to destroy the earth, that the earth will not end because of things that human beings do, nor will human beings be able to save the world. Uh, okay, so I, so you say that uh, in either way we are doomed, right? No, I mean, not for the people that uh, know their God. For the people who don't, they are doomed. But, I mean, the, the gospel uh, message of the Christian religion is very clear and people of faith, it's not a fairy tale. You know, we live in a world that's very miraculous. God reveals himself all the time. And so we know the rest of the story because we know our holy book. And, you know, if you don't know uh, what Christians teach and believe, do some investigations. You sound like a very um, educated, intelligent person. Uh, you know, Thank you very much. take a look at it. Uh, yes, uh, absolutely. but you know, in the Bible, we have so much tells us that in the end yeah. we win. Okay, yes, I mean, we have we, we, uh, we to look for similarities. We have to look for similarities, unless you and I don't get mad if somebody put a MAGA hat on their head or something like that. I mean, uh, then differences will be solved later on, maybe. I mean, narrow it down. So, but we want the same thing. We want, you know, a good America that everybody can live in peace and harmony and justice. I mean, if is is it, is that reasonable or not? Please. I can tell you that uh, that for people that are believers, they're not divided by national boundaries, and we do want uh, the same thing. 
we're united in that way, and it transcends national boundaries. I can say that the United States is off course because the people have forgotten who they are. They've forgotten their constitution, and I'm talking about the leaders mostly, and they've forgotten their Judeo-Christian roots, and so they have lost the source of their greatest strength. Uh, exactly. I mean, Mark, I want to thank you yes. for the call. I have one more question, my dear. I just want to... You know, constitutional... Oh, go ahead, cost, Constitutional United States say U.S. president is president of Sen- House of Senate and House of Congress. And that's it. Yeah, but we take uh, that uh, president of USA is controlling all 50 states. That's wrong. That's the Constitution of the United States. Am I right? No, there are three branches uh, of government, and the executive is uh, one of those branches. And the the Congress is supposed to pass the laws. The executive is the one that implements those laws. And so the president, uh, his position is the position that is key, and the Congress is supposed to be representing the people, which they don't. Okay, so then why be no, presidents calling, uh, going, going, going to the wars like Venezuela, very soon, or uh, Middle East, another one, or another one, another one, without even going the going through the uh, uh, House of Congress and House of Senate, please. That's illegal. Any uh, president who the, the American system is broken. Uh, it's broken because it's being run by broken human beings that are more interested in in themselves and their own careers than the American people in solving problems. No, uh, so that is true. It, Mike, it will I want to thank you for the call. I want so, to... One second, please. One, yeah, I, one, I, uh, it will come a time that mothers and fathers, they will not send their people to the war and say, hell with the war. That will come soon. Thank you. Thank you. Follow me on uh, you, Facebook and Twitter and uh, email me, and we can continue our conversation offline. And see, what a lot of people fail to understand is that um, it's hard to have it's hard to have unity when you have people in power that has a have an agenda, and that agenda becomes you know the, the cure all for every thought that they have, you know. And unity is not one of them when you're going against, you know, what they want to do, you know. And I'm speaking of the left here. They have a different um, vision for America than what the founding fathers put forth in the Constitution. So that's where we're, you know, where we come to conflict in America when you have one group who are not satisfied with this country as it was founded, and you have the other group who's trying to preserve that. Well, you know, when you got those kind of forces working, you're going to have conflict. I agree. Well, Carol, you said something that's something very important, Carol, is that we've gotten away from our Judeo-Christian beliefs, basis upon which this nation was founded, upon which the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution were written. You know, people don't understand that. And what the left has understood very well and has worked against us is that if they can se- separate us from our God, then government becomes our God. 
and then we have to worship at the old government, which the left has done very well with something such as Medicaid and food stamps and welfare and so on and so forth. So as long as they can separate us from our faith, then they can control us. And that means separating us from my history. They are not teaching history and they're separating, uh, you know, our young people from the history of this country. That's true. Absolutely. Absolutely. Carol, our next uh, guest is up in the studio here. I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, I'd love to have you back again, and I'll get a hold of Jackie, and we can schedule you again, because uh, there's so much more to talk about. I think I only hit three things on the list of things to talk to you about. Uh, so I want to see you come back on. And good luck with the uh, new podcast. Thank you. And there's a free uh, uh, download on my website, from Democrat to Republican, a Southern black woman's journey to freedom that people can download free. All right. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Thank you very much. And God bless for the hard work. Enjoy your weekend. Thank you. Bye. Take care. All right. Dr. Carol Swan, just check out her website, which is uh, with the podcast up on the uh, graphic there, as well as up on the show page here. want to welcome a new guest into here, a new victim, uh, Ace Luciano. Good afternoon, Ace, and welcome to Southern Sense. I'm your hostess, Annie, the radio chick, along with my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Welcome aboard. Well, good afternoon. I hope you can hear me okay. Uh, loud and clear. Loud and clear. Great. You know, um, when I was... I was looking at your stuff and I was cracking up because, you know, uh, anytime someone's out there and they have, they're out hunting or something like that. And you post the pictures up, say on Facebook or all the other social media, the left goes berserk. How dare you stand there holding a gun uh, with this animal you went and hunted down? You mean nasty person. How dare you? Yeah. And you know what I tell people like that is not only did I do it, but I enjoyed every moment of doing it from the planning <laughs> and uh, putting in for the tags and thinking about it the year before all the way up until the second that I pulled the trigger. And then especially when I defrost the meat, cook it up into something fantastic and serve it, you know, to my family as the ultimate in organic protein. I mean, that's when I really enjoy it. But, yeah, every step of the process I enjoy. Anybody that eats meat that ha- that is anti-hunting is a hypocrite. You know, I, I'm not a hunter. I, I enjoy fishing more. Uh, I'd rather have someone else do the hunting. But when I get some, some fresh venison or something like that, oh, man, I, we have fun with that. Uh, but that's the difference. You know, in the United States, when we were founded, the, the people that came over here, they were self-sufficient. We were independent. You know, you went out there, you, you hunted for your own food, you planted your own gardens, and this is something our society no longer does. You know, unless there's a whole Wait, they didn't have food the stamps corner, they're going to starve. <laughs> right? There, there, was no, there were no food stamps back in the days of the pioneers and the mountain men and all Come on. How did they ever survive? I mean, clearly, with the government <laughs> that we have, you know, in place today, especially one side of the government, I mean, You would think that without food stamps and welfare, like two-thirds of the population wouldn't be able to come up with their next meal. What a bunch of malarkey. Yeah, it it is true. But as I was discussing with uh, Dr. Swain, uh, the left realizes that if they separate us from our history, if they separate us from our God, from our faith, 
then we become dependent upon the altar of government. And they're doing this really well. Yeah, they are. You know, I, I just got in this discussion on another political uh, forum just, I think it was two days ago. Um, I recently just returned from the annual shooting, hunting, and outdoor trade show, which is a week-long extravaganza of all things guns, outdoors, and hunting. And it's a, an amazing show. As you can imagine, there's a lot of people there that are uh, very similar in belief to me and, and what I believe. Um, and we had some great conversations. One of the conversations that kept popping up was, boy, you know, the problem with Democrats and liberals is they got a good ground game. And the reason they have a good ground game is because their people aren't ambitious for anything but politics. Like the rest of us, those of us that are productive people that have businesses and jobs and things, when we get done with an election, we're like, oh, God, thank God that's over. Now we can go back to being productive citizens. Liberals just go, wait, the election's over, we lost, now we're going to triple our efforts, and we're going to pay twice the number of protesters. And, you know, I mean, those of us that are productive folks, we can't get by on the $12 an hour that you pay a professional protester, right? But they have a lot of folks that are like that. Therefore, their ground game is good. And quite frankly, until we start fighting them more effectively, we're going to lose things like we lost an election in Arizona. God, Kirsten Cinema, the, the Cinema uh, uh, race, Senate race, should, that woman should never have had a chance. She's a complete nut job. But yet, she edged out Martha McSally, a U.S. Air Force veteran, the first woman combat fighter pilot, on a single issue. Can you guess what that single issue was? Go ahead. Healthcare. It was healthcare. Every commercial, every 10 minutes, there was a commercial saying, Martha McSally voted to take away your health care. Kirsten Cinema wants health care for everybody. And they did a good job of convincing people of that. I know people that voted for her solely on that issue. I know people that, have, that are gun owners. I know people that are hunters. I know people that are conservatives that voted for her because they actually believed the rhetoric. And it was, it was crazy. It was crazy. And now the second she, just like always with liberals that lie to get in office, the second she's in office, what does she do besides wear a pair of stripper boots on the floor of the Senate? She goes and starts marching right in step with Nancy Pelosi. Did you see that picture? <laughs> yes, yeah, standing like, right. What, what class? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I saw, I saw that picture. I mean, and it, it clashed. The, the boots did not even match that crazy, silly dress. You know, where is the decorum now on the House, on the floor of the House of Representatives? My own uh, representative, Joe Cunningham, or Beer Can Joe, uh, trying uh. to sneak a six-pack, not, not a flask, not a, a, a little bottle hidden in his attache case. He tries to bring a friggin' six-pack, smuggle a six-pack onto the floor. Really? Right. Right. You can't wait that long? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but what are we going to do? And the answer is we better come up with a plan soon because it's only going to get worse. The more they win, the more things they take away. And actually, we're going to have to start employing some of the tactics they use by keeping the ground game going 24-7. And this is something, as you said, you know, we are responsible people. We go out there, we vote, and 
you campaign, you vote, you go home, the election's over. We got peace of mind for the next year or so before you start running a campaign again. We can get back to our lives, our kids, our family, our vacations, just being taking care of ourselves and our family and our neighbors. That's what we're about. So we're thinking about, you know, just our own security here. We're not worrying about go grabbing power. And yet that's the difference. We don't care about power. We just want our lives to be left alone. And we can't do that anymore. We can't because we're losing. Facts don't matter to them. Facts don't matter and results don't matter. I'll give you a great example. My former home state of Wisconsin. My former home state of Wisconsin has gone back to insanity. They elected a guy that that is about the most – he's probably the only person that's more beta male than Barack Obama was. I mean, we had the ultimate beta male for president for eight years. I don't know how that happened. But this guy makes Barack Obama look manly, and he is just uh, dismantling every bit of success Wisconsin has had for the past decade. And you can't argue with it. There, there, you just cannot argue with the success. You can't argue with the fact that there's a huge surplus, and yet these ridiculous people believe that there is no surplus, that there's actually a deficit, and they just, they just don't. They don't see the facts staring them right in the face. They believe whatever they're told. And I think that's the reason. We had this discussion as well last week. You know, when Republicans and conservatives get in power, we argue about the best way to get the most effective things done and do it in the best way possible. And therefore, we get very little done. When Democrats get in power, they just look to the top four or five people for their marching orders, and they all march in step, and they take rights away. I mean, it, it happens every time. Look at Obamacare, case in point, you know. Well, now they're going after Medicare for all, which would mean medical attention to no one because doctors are no longer carrying Medicare. Unless you've been grandfathered into a practice and you're a new patient going in there with Medicare, that no doctor's going to take it. So you're going to end up with someone, you, work, which is I have concierge service, so unless you have something like that, you can kiss your medical care goodbye. And, oh, by the way, it ain't free. It ain't free, right. guys. But they're going to use like that everybody message said. to try to get votes. Right. They try and get votes by doing that. I mean, I don't know. if they, Clearly, these people don't know anybody that have uh, family members on Medicare. Because I can assure you that if we get Medicare for all, all that means is that we'll all have crappy health care instead of just the old folks having crappy health care. I mean, that's literally what it is. I have so many family members that are both doctors and recipients of Medicare. My parents are on Medicare. They still pay six or $700 a month just to get the right quality of care that they need. Tell me how that's a bargain. That is not a bargain. And yet these people march lockstep with their talking pieces at the head of the Democrat Party. It astounds me. It astounds me. I, sometimes I, 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 I have very little hope for the future looking at the mentality of the people that can believe some of these things. You know, it would be great if health care were free. It's not. It's not a right. It, you're not entitled to it. It is something that you have to pay for because someone has to give it to you as a service. You cannot conscript the services of a physician for free. You must pay them. Otherwise, that's slavery. Last I checked, well, we don't have that here. Ace, 
Isn't you know, it true uh, Kellen that, um, in the chat room, uh, Curtis, I just want to mention, Kellen in the chat room just said something that is very true, that a lot of doctors took early retirement when Obamacare went into effect. And I had a doctor that turned around and he goes, I'm going to go shrimping. He he was a practitioner and he, I said, what happens once it's, and they put it into effect? He goes, I'm going to give up my practice. I'll probably sell it or whatever, or just even close the doors. And I'm going to walk away and become a river. And he did. It was more profitable for him to go out shrimping than to stay in practice with Obamacare. And I go to a concierge doctor, and I was grandfathered in with the Medicare. So at least, you know, I do have coverage. I have to pay additional several hundred dollars a month for my husband and I just to have that care. But once Medicare for All goes in, I may benefit because I'm grandfathered in, but my next-door neighbor won't. The person across the street won't. Uh, first won't. You won't. You're going you're gonna to be the ones that pay the price. And they're going to give you the lie saying Medicare for all is going to be insurance for all, and you're not going to lose your doctor, and you'll be guaranteed care. And it's a lie. And they're going to buy the lie. They don't understand economics. Well, what okay, I'm Curtis, you say. had a question. <clears throat> Socialism, as far as I know, is shared misery. (laughs) But going back to what you were saying about how the Democrats stick together, you know, Paul Ryan knew he was going to be leaving Congress. And if he and the 45 that left around the time he left really cared about the country and were, you know, devoted to um, what the party believed in, they would have been there every single day instead of taking a holiday off, passing all the bills that they could, knowing that the Democrats were going to take over come January, but they didn't. And I think that's that's a a big failure in leadership within the uh, Republican Party, because like I said, they knew that the um, Democrats were going to take over, but we had the majority in the House and the Senate, and um, in the House, they should have been passing every bill that they could get up to um, Donald Trump's desk so he could sign off on it. And they didn't because most of them were never Trumpers. They didn't believe in, you know, um, what he was doing, trying to do for the country. And and others were just never Trumpers. So I think that's one reason why we, we're stuck with this um, immigration um, fiasco right now. Because they could have, they could have done something about that. When they had, well, having you know, been the numbers. a Wisconsin resident for the majority of Paul Ryan's political career, I can assure you that Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House, was not the Paul Ryan we sent to Congress. He wasn't. He was not the humble guy from, you know, uh, from Wisconsin, from near Beloit, Wisconsin, or you know, in that area. That's it was his constitu- constituency all in that area, a very blue-collar area, very humble beginnings there, right? He was not the guy that was speaker, the same guy that was Speaker of the House. And I think what happens, he, he would be the poster child for the phrase, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Because a lot of these guys get in there and they just get caught in the wave. And I don't know if they're going and having wild parties where people take pictures or something. I don't know what happens because some of the things that they do and vote on 
and don't speak on and don't you go, you wonder who is this person? What happened to this to this person that we voted for? And then you got to look back and go, I wonder what they got on him. I wonder what he did. I wonder what someone in his family did that they're holding over him to prevent this vote. Because I have been assured by people that I have known in politics that say that happens every single day in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. makes the mob look like straight business people. I mean, they, you know, they, they make the mafia look like your average dry cleaning business owner. You know, yeah, they take a little bit from the till now and then, but overall, they're, you know, they're straight and narrow. They pay their bills and send their kids to school, right? Well, we all know the mob wasn't that, and Washington's worse. They do all kinds of bad things. Or how else can people, how can the Clintons go in? Bill Clinton's governor's salary was something ridiculous, like $38,000 as governor of Arkansas. They're worth $100 million now. How does that happen? Tell me that that's not corrupting. I mean, it has to be. And until we find a way to get around that, you know, I don't see anything changing. You know, I, I proposed at one point to uh, one of my uh, congressmen, and, well, if we want to bring control back to the states, why don't we make it that the senator that's elected from your state and your congressman that's elected from your state are paid by your state legislator. Take the salaries and benefits out of the federal government and bring it back to the state from which you were elected. You will then right. be more beholden to the state you represent than to yourself. Wouldn't that be a solution? Right. And let the state vote on whether they get a raise. And let the state vote on whether they have to participate in the state health care program. Instead of just a bunch of guys in a room going... Yeah, we think this is a good idea for everybody. Well, of course not us. You know, we don't need to participate in Obamacare. We have, you know, we're senators. We're we're congressmen. We we're important people. We can't participate with the rest of the people. That's ridiculous. You know, and I agree with you. What a great idea. I also think that everybody should have to write a check for their taxes every month. I think if we did that, you'd see this country turn around immediately. If instead of the, just yanking it out of the paycheck so no one sees it. If at the end of every month you had to write that check, let me tell you something. People would pay much more attention to what was going on. Well, another thing that we can do is change the date in which you file your, your income taxes. Instead of on April 15th, make it the day before election, the first Monday in November. If you've got to write that yep. check and then the very next day go to the polls to vote, hmm, I wonder how many people would be voting for all these big, greedy people. Wouldn't that also yeah. be a solution? Well, and we have the other problem of yeah. 47% of the people in the country voting that pay nothing in taxes, voting how much the other 53% should have to pay. Like I, I really kind of disagree with that, too. I understand why we can't make paying taxes a qualification to vote. But, man, it sure would be a good idea. It would solve a lot of problems, you know. <laughs> that it would. That it would. Now, we were talking about the swamp and, you know, people getting fat cats. Um, but El Chapo, who's on trial up in uh, New York uh, for his drug dealing, uh, said in open court, you know, hey, I give money to politicians so that they don't build the, water fe- uh, the, the border fence. Gee. Yep. 
Do you think maybe that's why the Democrats are fighting the wall? Now, when the Democrats were in charge, they said, oh, we're for the border fence, we're for security, but they knew nothing would go through Congress. So now it's the other way around. we got Trump saying, I'm building the wall, and now they're frightened because all this money coming in from the cartels into their campaigns is going to dry up. Now, how about that, Ace? Well, I tell you, you can say what you want about Donald Trump. You know, he isn't the most eloquent person. He is not what I would call the most genteel and uh, effective speaker. But the one thing he does is he does what he says he's going to do. He says what's on his mind, and he does what he says he's going to do. And he said they're going to build a wall. So, therefore, I still have faith we're going to have that wall down here. And let me tell you, living down here on the border, it is a whole different world. Washington, D.C., New York, Minnesota even. Minnesota has their own border, but it is nothing like the border that Arizona has, right? I mean, we have people coming through every single day, thousands. One of my dearest friends for over 30 years is a Border Patrol agent. He's been on the Border Patrol for 22 years. He tells me stories that would, they would literally keep you awake at night if you're a parent. How about finding children in the dark in the middle of the night, almost dead in the middle of the desert, nobody around for hundreds of miles. Just walking in patrol and hearing something in the bushes and finding a child four or five years old. How about people wandering out of the desert so dehydrated that even with, you know, fluids and such, they have to be rushed to an emergency room or they're in danger of dying? How about women being found raped, beaten, near death because the uh, coyotes that took them across the border decided that they wanted to have their way with one of them. And these are not something that happens just now and then. These are things that, that happen on an almost daily basis. And let me tell you, our men and women of the Border Patrol are some of the bravest people on the planet because I live down here and I am an outdoorsman, right? I go places, I carry guns, I carry knives, I have everything I need to survive in the wild. You know what I don't do? I don't go running out in the desert in the middle of the night. And these guys do it alone, and they may be doing it and come face-to-face with, you know, a, a drug mule train that's heavily armed, and things can get bad in a hurry. You know, these are brave men and women, and let me tell you, they are unanimous in their uh, call for a border wall. That's why, they're, that's why they had their union representatives with Donald Trump saying, we need a wall, we need a barrier, it will help us. And the argument that, well, there's no wall on the northern border, therefore we don't need a wall on the southern border, is the most ridiculous argument I've ever heard in my life. You know, the trafficking that comes across that border is horrendous. I don't live on the border. Um, I do know some border agents. And I've been hearing the stories, you know, me, I walk the streets of New York City as a cop, uh, so I can't imagine what these guys are going to have to go through. Because at least as a cop, you know, I had my radio and I knew there was 35,000 other cops within the city, and if I needed help, they would be there in a heartbeat. Uh, But these guys are out there alone. And at one point, they were being armed with only beanbag ammo, you know. We had two administrations under George Bush, and under um, 
uh, Clinton and actually under Obama where the border agents were treated as pure trash. Two were sent to prison and Bush refused to pardon them. The entire time he was in office, they sat there in prison. Uh, so, you know, yeah. it's, it's not an easy life for these guys, but they're going out there and doing a hard job. And they're trying to save lives. So if they're saying that a wall works, it will help us do our job and save lives, then why can't we get the left to understand this is about saving lives? Not just protecting the lives of Americans on the other side, but the lives of the people that are risking it coming across with these criminals that are taking advantage of them. Well, and not, you know, not just that, but these, the big argument I hear is, well, it takes hours to get to some of these places and access to some of these places would be difficult. And a wall is only going to slow them up just a little bit. It still takes them all that time to get there. What the border patrol says is that's exactly right. And the access points and roads that they use to build that wall will give us the access and uh, different rally points that we need to service the wall. How about we put manned guard posts out there? How about we have people that sit out in some of those guard posts at night on top of the wall? Like, that makes a big difference. When you've got someone with a truck there, especially for the guys that are out on patrol, uh, my, my friend happens to be a, a patrolman with a canine unit, so at least he's got a dog with him. But he tells me horror stories about running through it in the middle of the night and, like, coming up on things like mountain lions and rattlesnakes. Like, there's not just bad people out there. There are things in the desert that can kill you just as easily, you know. So he talked about one, uh, one bus being totally broken up because one of the agents that was on there stepped on a rattlesnake. That'll get your attention in the middle of the night, you know. So you just got to say- give them a lot of credit for what they do. And that's one thing you probably never had to worry about in New York City, I'll bet. <clears throat> probably backup was more than two or three <laughs> no, hours away. Rattlesnakes. You know? Rats, So yes, they, rats, they deal with all no. kinds of stuff. Rats, right. Rats, but not rattlesnakes. So, I mean, I, I really think, and, you know, it, it goes back to being a person that is a, an ardent Second Amendment supporter. I mean, if, if ever there, there was a clear case of why it's important that, people be allowed to carry weapons for their protection. You know, people laugh at me. I, I've had people laugh at me because whenever I quail hunt down here, I carry a, a 9 millimeter with at least one spare magazine and often a spare box of ammo in my pack because you never know what you can run across. And let me tell you, if things, I have been in situations down near the border where we'll be deer hunting or javelina hunting and we're on a mountain, on the side of a mountain, and we look, and the next mountain over, a half mile away, we see a dozen guys walking across in dark clothes, a couple of them carrying AK-47. There's no cellular coverage out there. What if those guys decided to walk the trail that came along our mountain? Then what? Things get ugly in a hurry. I'd certainly rather have something than a, a shotgun loaded with birdshot in my hands, right? So, I mean, all of the things, it, it amazes me to go back to our initial point that everything about the left is so anti-citizen, anti-America, and anti-American. It, it's like they pick the exact opposite of the right thing to do and the right thing to do to keep people safe, happy, and healthy. The opposite of that is what Democrats love. I, I, it, it astounds me. 
Instead, they, they accuse you of toxic masculinity. If you wear a Make America Great Again cat, a hat, you are a Nazi, you are a bigot, you are a racist. What is wrong with expressing your opinion? We're not saying uh, that the left, we should jail them all. We're not saying I'm going to come over and beat you up. We're just saying, hey, listen, this is my opinion. So if you wear Black Lives Matter, why should I, shouldn't I be upset then? You know, it's the hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is is absolutely amazing. Well, and I really can't believe how it just seems, and this has been, I've done a lot of study into this. You know, I like to think I'm a student of government and I'm a student of people. For over 20 years, I've made my living reading people. I'm, I'm a sales and marketing guy, right? And I look at these people and I look at what they do and what they say, and around about two years ago, something really occurred to me. And, I, you know, I'm a big proponent of know thy enemy better than thyself, right? So I read Rules for Radicals. And let me tell you, every person out there that's a conservative should read that book. That thing should be required reading of your children so that they learn what this is. Because when you read that, you really see what the game is. You realize very quickly that not only – is all of this a plan? Not only is this part of why their ground game is so good on, on the left, but you realize that the left is guilty of everything that they accuse others of and more. If they call you a racist, you can count on the fact that they are racist. If they call you a bigot, you can take that to the bank that those people are bigots. If they say you're, you know, you're against women, you can count on the fact that those people have a lower opinion of women than men in almost 100% of the cases. There are certainly exceptions, and I like to believe that a lot of people come to their thoughts and opinions from a position of good. I really believe that people are inherently good, but they're, they're corrupted by evil. And I really think that the left and their, their plans and the things that they do are at this point rooted in evil. I mean, to, to bring up another sensitive subject, you know, why would you allow a baby to be ripped out of a mother's womb at eight months, you know, three weeks, six days? Why would you allow that? Why, why would you allow it at one week, but why would you allow it then? What makes you think that that is okay? And yet you can turn around and say you're non-compassionate because you don't want to give free health care to everybody. It's, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's crazy, and I, I just don't know what to do. I think we've made it so easy for our children, and it was my generation, a lot of, you know, that, that's behind a lot of this, but even my children's generation is even worse because, you know, we had a lot easier lives than our parents did. Our grandparents went through the Great Depression, right? Their kids had an easier life, but it was still kind of rough. Ours was pretty easy, you know, in retrospect compared to what they have, and golly, our kids' age now, if you're in your 40s and you have kids that are teens and 20s, you look at what they have available to them at their fingertips, realize they've never had to scratch or work for anything, and it makes them very complacent. That's why my children work. I have made my children work for everything that they, that they have ever gotten their entire lives. As a matter of fact, when they were little kids, they knew that they, if they asked, can I have, it was a guaranteed no. As soon as they said, how can I earn, they had a real good shot at getting whatever it was they wanted. 
And too many people don't do that. Oh, you, you have you a, know? Yeah, you have a, a perfect point there because uh, two weeks ago on my show, I had talked about an article that I found came across. Order, um, let her earn some extra money. So her mom said, all right, fine, I'll help you do that. So they came up with an ad that they posted online on a bold, local bulletin board uh, saying that, you know, this girl wanted to help people do house chores. You know, she would help pair a meal, clean the house, whatever they need to do. And, you know, the girl wanted to earn some money. And the mother wrote up the ad. She goes, fine. So that she has people calling into her. She goes, I'll basically interview the person to make sure that it's safe and it's okay because I'm not going to send you out anywhere that's not going to be safe for you. And so she puts the ad up. Within an hour or so, there is a sheriff knocking on her door because someone called in and saying it was child abuse. Oh, wow. <laughs> she was abusing her child. She was putting her child out there for child labor laws or whatever the thing was, and the officer comes in berating her for this without doing a full investigation. Now, we used to call those type of cops hairbags. Um, right. But I, I, I find this amazing. When I was growing up, you went out there, knocked on your neighbor's door, can I mow your lawn? And we didn't have a writing yep. mower or an electric mower or anything like that. You had one of those little round push motors, you know, those plays that roll around, and you sometimes oh, yeah. get your foot stuck in. Uh, or you'd knock and you'd babysit for, you know, neighbors and family, friends, or whatever. You would do something. I went at one point selling uh, stationery and cards door to door. You delivered newspapers. Yep. But now, no, these kids don't do that. That's the handout, put money in it, and I'm going to the mall. And they have these smart devices. They don't know how to interact with each other because their face is in the smart device. And their popularity is based on how many likes they have on Facebook or Instagram or something like that. The interpersonal relationship between our kids today is not the same as we had, where we could walk up and look someone straight in the eye, shake their hand, and introduce yourself to them. You're right. You're right. When I was a kid, I had a monopoly in the neighborhood. I had three kids that worked for me, raking leaves and cutting grass. So I, at one point when I was, I think, 12 <laughs> years old, I had two other kids that worked with me. We cut every week. We cut 10 lawns. And each lawn they cut, I got 10 bucks a lawn. I'd give them 6 bucks. Well, for me, that was great because they cut like 6 lawns. That's $24 in my pocket. And then I'd cut the four I cut, and there's 40. Man, I was loaded. You know, and that that type of entrepreneurial spirit doesn't exist in kids today. I mean, we, man, we shoveled snow. We did everything you could think of to earn money and go buy what we wanted to buy because our parents didn't have extra money just for trivial things, for validities. You want to go get candy? You found a way to go get money. You wanted to get an ice cream from an ice cream truck? You had to earn money. You either earned your allowance or you had to – God, every kid I knew had some sort of job when we were kids. I mean, I think all of my friends and I all had paper routes when we were kids, you know, and kids just don't do that these days. Now now adults run paper routes, and they drive in their cars and throw papers out the window. It's it's crazy, but, you know, we, we've taken that away, and I really think it's part of the reason why people think things are just so easy, why uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez can say, Cortez. how do you do that? Well, you just pay for it. <laughs> you know, really? 
Turns out she isn't <laughs> quite the, the suffering person that everyone thought. Turns out she went to a pretty darn nice school and lived in a pretty ritzy neighborhood growing up. So she isn't wow. some poor bartender, <laughs> you know. I mean, that's hey. it, you know, and, but that perception works. How much um, Go ahead, of Curtis. an impact do you think um, video games and and getting out there and selling drugs, especially in the urban areas, have an impact on the way our youth look at, you know, you know, honest hard work today? Oh, well, like it used to be in the old days. Well, I'll tell you, it's had a tremendous impact. Personally, it's had a, a, an impact in my life. I have a son that's that's uh, on the on the uh, autism spectrum, and he lives in a virtual world. Like that's what he does. He that he loves to do that. That's his release from everything. Very difficult to pry him away from it. But it's not just him. I see every kid his age, right? That does that. When I look at like drugs and the availability of easy money, I will never forget, I had a, a Dutch uncle named Johnny Lira. Johnny Lira was a world champion lightweight boxer, was trained by Angelo Dundee, the same uh, trainer that trained Muhammad Ali. So when I was a kid, I was, I was really lucky because I got to go to all kinds of Chicago athletic events and be, you know, hang out with him and go to boxing matches and football games and things and got to see a, a lot of cool things, including going to the Windy City gym and working out and to the Union League Boys Club and working out with a lot of inner city kids. And I didn't know this, but he would bring me in a lot because I was always kind of a studious kid. I got good grades. I got a scholarship, you know, partial scholarship to college. And he would bring me in and he'd talk to these kids about where, you know, where I was from, what I did, you know, how I was going to school. And I will never forget a kid looked at me and said, man, you work how long for that? And I, I told him at the time I was working two jobs over the summer to pay for my additional expenses for college and have a bunch of spending money. I have a lot of spending money. I used to make about 900 bucks a week in college when I was home for the summer. My family had businesses. I made $900 a week because I made 11 bucks an hour. I worked 80, 90 hours a week. It was real simple, right? He looked at me. He's like, man, you're stupid. I'm like, what do you mean I'm stupid? He goes, man, I can make that just in a couple hours every couple of days, not even doing nothing, just dialing the phone and letting the dealer on the street corner know that the popo is coming by. I'm like, what? And I really thought to myself, I'm like, kid's got a good point. Who's going to, like, why would he go to work 90 hours a week when he knows he can make that kind of money with very low risk? All he's got to do is make a couple phone calls. You know, that's kind of silly. I think it it makes a tremendous impact. It is silly. I just want to mention, I see callers inside the studio. Uh, if you do want to ask a question of our guest, Ace Luciano, uh, please press one. Otherwise, I will assume that you're just listening in. Uh, we've only got just a couple more minutes left, uh, Ace. I want to let people know that your website is your name, Ace Luciano. And uh, and when I booked you with Jackie, I said, as my grandmother would say, Anuch, that's a nice Italian boy. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, yeah. And if you got in trouble, she had a wooden arm and just make sure you duck when she starts swinging the wooden arm. <laughs> well, I well and, you know, I tell you, that's, just, that's actually my father's nickname. That's why you say that. We're both named Jerry, but my father's nickname Lucky. was Lucky growing up because he was much closer to that era than I was. 
But, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because I think another part of our problem in society today is we've lost tradition. Now, my family, we still celebrate all the traditional Italian holidays. We don't eat meat during Lent. You know, we don't eat meat on St. Joseph's Day, on New Year's Eve or Christmas Eve. We celebrate the Feast of the Seven Fishes. We celebrate St. Lucy's Day, right? We have these very traditional Italian cultural traditions. My wife is not Italian, right? She has adopted my family's traditions because her family really didn't have any. So if you don't have a strong family heritage and strong family and strong family tradition, it's very easy to be led astray. I think that's another reason why we're going down these bad paths because, quite frankly, people feel like they're, you know, they, they, there's really nothing to lose. They don't have to worry about their family, their tradition, their lives, their legacy. It's because they already don't have one. And you're so right, Ace, because in the black community when I was growing up, on Flag Day, there used to be flags everywhere in the black community. Now, yeah. you know, it's hard, you're hard-pressed to get them to, to salute the flag or to stand up and say the Pledge of Allegiance because it's been drilled into them over and over again how bad America is. You know, we still live in the greatest you know, country on earth. I want to make a... I think there's still hope, but there are days when it's hard. You know, we've got the Super Bowl coming up this weekend, and um, I haven't watched a game now in two years. And I'm a huge Green Bay Packer fan. I always have been since I was a kid. Go Pack. And uh, <laughs> to me, it, I miss the Packs. I miss the Pack attack. Uh, but the NFL has lost so many viewers and so many attendees to the to the games because of these protests against the flag and against our soldiers. Uh, their ratings have dropped so rock bottom. So what do they do? They work with the Las Vegas guys, and they end up allowing nationwide betting. And as of last week, something worth like $6 billion had been bet on the Super Bowl. That is the only way they can get people to attend the games and to watch them on TV. Now, is that really stooping for the lowest denominator and the easiest way to grab money? I I think it's the lowest blow that the the NFL could do. Well, and, and I think you're right. And I think the NFL is another testament to the, the, the loss of respect for people for themselves, for their elders, for their leaders, and for the country. Because last I checked, last I checked, if I did something that pissed off my boss, I got fired and kicked to the curb. And that's just what happened. And if you kneel and your boss, who is the coach, or your boss, who is the owner, doesn't like that, you should be gone. There shouldn't be any of this kowtowing to these players because, let's face it, none of them are underprivileged. I don't care who they are. I don't care what their life was. If anything, they are a testament to the greatness and potential in this country. You can start with nothing. You can start from the barrios of Los Angeles, right? And be so poor that your mother's got to work three jobs. But you can go on to be an Olympic gold medalist and lightweight champion of the world, Oscar De La Hoya. You can start from nowhere. You can be dirt poor, get a scholarship to college, and become one of the greatest running backs and baseball players that has ever lived. Bo Jackson, right? Tom Brady. Tom Brady was a second-string quarterback 
Tom Brady was too small to be in the NFL. Tom Brady's scouting report said he probably would never make it. I will watch the Super Bowl this Sunday, having not watched a single NFL game, just to see Tom Brady bask in that glory. I love stories like that. There's a dude that said, oh, yeah? Oh, you think I'm too small? Watch this. Oh, yeah, you think I can't do? You think I can't come back and win this game? Watch this, right? And to tell you the truth, I love the fact that he's a Trump supporter. I love the fact that he's a testament to the greatness of this country, to what can still be accomplished by anybody, because he literally was a nobody. And now he's going to be probably the greatest quarterback that has ever lived, though being a Packer fan and before that being a Joe Montana fan because he went to Notre Dame, right? I hate to say that, but it's a fact. He's going to be the greatest. And he did it. He did it himself. No one gave that to him. Is he? Isn't he the oldest also? Because I believe he's 41. Yeah, he will be the oldest quarterback to win a Super Bowl if he wins. Well, Ace, it has been a pleasure so, having you with us. It is so much fun. We're definitely going to have you back on. Uh, I want to thank Jackie uh, Jones from her, that is your agent, for sending you guys over to us. Uh, it mostly was all her, her her customers with us. So we had so much fun. And, you know, keep up the good work out there. You know, not only just through your website do you talk about the outdoors and sports and everything, but you also teach safety, gun safety to kids, too, which is important to get them to respect it and help protect our Second Amendment. God bless you for all the hard work you do, Ace. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure, and I'll be happy to come back anytime you want me. Take all right, care. Ace. Have a great weekend and enjoy the, the game. All right, Ace Luciano. Right, check them out, aceluciano.com. There is a link up on the show page, so as you listen to the podcast, just look down to his description, and there's the link. Uh, Curtis, we did not start off the show with a dedication to a fallen hero because of the way it was scheduled, so we're ending the show with a dedication to a fallen hero. Every show has a dedication, be they law enforcement, military, first responders, or exceptional citizens of the United States. And today's dedication is going to go out to Army Corporal Joseph Vassell. His end of uh, tour was July 7th of 2018 while serving during Operation Freedom's Sentinel in Afghanistan. And this is from ABC7 News. The Pentagon says the U.S. service member killed in an apparent insider attack in southern Afghanistan was a soldier from California. In a statement, the Pentagon identified the soldier as Corporal Joseph Massal of Southgate, California. He died in Tarwin Quat District in Afghanistan. Massal was assigned to the 1st Battalion, 28th Infantry Regiment, 3rd Infantry Division out of Fort Benning, Georgia, assigned to Task Force 128 Infantry is deployed in support of the 1st Security Force Assistance Brigade. He had served in Afghanistan since February of 2018. Corporal Massal was an excellent soldier, beloved by his teammates, and dedicated to our mission. He will be greatly missed by the entire Black Lion family. Our prayers are with his family and friends during this difficult time. Lieutenant David Connor, Massal's battalion commander, said in a news release, Masao's awards and decorations included the Bronze Star, Purple Heart, 
Army Achievement Medal and Afghanistan Campaign Medal, according to the Pentagon. The U.S.-led coalition headquarters in Kabul had said that two other U.S. service members were wounded in the attack. Well, this article is short and sweet, yet it speaks nothing as to who Corporate Nassau was. His life dreams or loves, his obituary was even more terse. U.S. Army Corporal Joseph Nassau passed away on July 7, 2018. He was born on September 5, 1997 and survived by his mother, Angelina, stepfather, Anthony, siblings, Amber, Gabriel, Adrian, Angel, and Stephanie. The funeral services were held at Green Hills Memorial Chapel following his interment. So I looked further, and I came across this in Breitbart News, written by Christina Wong, and I've edited it down. Army Corporal Joseph Nassau from Southgate, California, was killed over the weekend in southern Afghanistan by an Afghan soldier in an apparent green-on-blue attack as he was protecting his fellow soldiers. His death marks the third U.S. military death in Afghanistan that year. He was 20 years old. The first SFAB deployed to Afghanistan in February to provide hands-on training and assistance to Afghan forces. Corporal Massal was an infantryman assigned to Task Force 128, attached to the 1st SFAB as a member of our security force element. In that role, he was selflessly protecting others when he was killed with a statement on the 1st SFAB's Facebook page. On behalf of the 1st SFAB, we extend our heartfelt thoughts and prayers to Corporal Massal's family during this very difficult time. We're incredibly proud of Corporal Massal's selfless service to his fellow soldiers and our nation, and are deeply saddened by his loss. We will never forget him or his ultimate sacrifice. Army Colonel Scott Jackson, commander of the 1st FFAB. An Afghan man also posted, Nassau, you're gone. You took my heart with you. I do convey my sincerest condolences to his family, and it saddened me a lot that I lost a brother in arm. I could not do anything other than run around to rescue you, but it was too late. My brother, rest in peace, and may God give your family the courage to tolerate this valuable loss. Salute. Other posts showed Afghan troops how to clear improvised explosive devices or bombs and training Afghan troops in basic marksmanship, shona ba shona, or shoulder to shoulder. The attack occurred in the district of Tehran Khat in the Urgazan province in southeastern Afghanistan. The district was once pacified by NATO forces, but as the troops' presence drew down, Taliban forces moved back in, turning it once again into a contested battlefield. Militants are actively operating in a number of the districts, including Tehran Khat. And then, even this, was not enough to know who Corporal Massal really was. This is from the Press Telegram. The soldier killed in an apparent insider attack in southern Afghanistan was a fun-loving soul who enjoyed spending time with his cousins in his hometown of Long Beach, his father said. Army Corporal Joseph Massal, 20, was buried in Green Hills Memorial Park in Rancho Palos Verdes. Joseph Leal said, 
He was a very happy soldier, citizen, and human, Real said, from Fort Benning, Georgia, where his son was stationed and where he was remembered at a memorial service. And Sal was born at St. Mary's Medical Center in Long Beach and grew up in the city until his parents separated when he was in middle school, and he moved with his mother to Southgate, Leal said. He was a great child, always smiling, always helping, Leal said. Masao was the oldest of two children born to Leal and Angelina Masao, he said. He also had four half-siblings. Growing up, Masao loved to play paintball and basketball with his cousins and go to the beach. He joined the Army after high school when he was 18, his decision to enlist didn't surprise his father because his son was always dutiful. It made him proud to see his son finish training camp. Out of 100 soldiers, only 40 left, he said. Fort Ben was Masao's first assignment, and he had served in Afghanistan since February, according to Fort Benning. Leal said he had received an outpouring of support from other Army parents this week. I'm taking a day at a time, and it's hard. Tomorrow's going to be the hardest, he said. Leal said he doesn't blame anyone for his son's death. That was his job, and he loved it. He said he loved life. Today's show is dedicated to Corporal Masao. It's also dedicated to all the brave men and women that serve in our military from the birth of our nation through today and into its future. And it's also dedicated to all the brave men and women that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, emergency service, or border patrol. We dedicate to each and every one of them this song, Amazing Grace. May God bless each and every one.
I want to thank everyone for joining us in the chat room and listening in the studio as well as up on Facebook and uh, YouTube and Spreaker or else. Uh, we will be back again on Friday. Our new show times are Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And thank you for everyone that uh, participated in the chat room. Curtis, we'll say good night and God bless, shouldn't we? Unless you've got something else to say. <laughs> I just want to say it's good to be back um, on the airways with with you guys, and you know we got a lot more shows to do. Oh yeah, and a lot more. And it's a new format where we have a lot more guests than we have in the past. A new format, yeah. Uh, And it's also a time slot that not a lot of other shows are in. So with that, with our closing, when the roll is called up yonder. And I say good night, God bless, and enjoy your weekend. <laughs>